Chapter 7 Privateering and National Defense Naval Warfare for Private Profit by Larry J. Seacrest Hans Hermann Hopper has argued that, quote, the idea of collective security is a myth that provides no justification for the modern state, and all security is and must be private, end quote. Furthermore, Hopper makes it abundantly clear that, when referring to security, he means protection against not only the small-scale depredations of the common criminal, but also the massive aggressions perpetrated by nation-states. The claim that all legitimate defense functions can and must be privately supplied flies in the face of certain economic doctrines that are almost universally accepted. Almost all economists declare that there are some goods or services that will be provided in sub-optimal quantities, or not provided at all, by private, profit-seeking firms. These public goods allegedly bring benefits to all in the society, whether or not any given individual bears his or her fair share of their cost. This free riding by some persons diminishes the profit incentive motivating private suppliers. Therefore, to make sure that such highly valued goods are provided, the government serves as the principal or often the only supplier and taxes all the citizens in order to finance the production and distribution of the good. There has been spirited debate at times about which exact goods or services should be included in the category of public goods. At least one, however, is almost invariably included. National defense. Even some otherwise quite radical thinkers have found it at least plausible that national defense cannot be effectively supplied by the private sector. One might take David D. Friedman as a notable example. Friedman, despite thinking that it may be possible to defend against foreign nations by voluntary means, nevertheless grants that tax-financed government defense forces could prove to be the only way to confront foreign aggression. In fact, at one point he explicitly describes national defense as a public good. The purpose here is to challenge just that sort of statement. The attack on national defense as a public good that must be provided by the state will be two-pronged. The first part, the briefer of the two, will raise theoretical questions about public goods in general and national defense in particular. The second part will be devoted to a detailed survey of privateering, a form of naval warfare conducted by privately owned ships, which lasted from the 12th century to the 19th century. What privateers were, how they operated, the legal customs that grew up around them, how effective they were, how profitable they were, and why they disappeared, will all be addressed. The common employment of privateers during wartime will be offered as empirical evidence that defense need not be monopolized by the state. Some Theoretical Problems Public goods are collectively thought to be economic goods with peculiar collective characteristics. If supplied at all, 
They will be supplied to and provide benefits for anyone and everyone. The phenomena of joint production and external economies. But what if, when governmentally supplied, they are not even economic goods? If not, then much of the conventional analysis of public goods is misguided and inappropriate. More than a century ago, Karl Menger argued that four conditions must all be met in order for any given thing to be a good. One, there must exist some unfulfilled human need. Two, the thing must possess properties which are causally related to the satisfaction of the need. Three, the economic actor must have knowledge of that causal relation. And four, the actor must have sufficient command of the thing that he can actually employ it in satisfying the need. If any one of these conditions is no longer met, then the thing involved ceases to be a good. Imaginary goods are those where no causal relation to human needs actually exists, although some nevertheless believe that it does. Charms, divining rods, love potions are examples. According to Menger, goods become economic goods when their, quote, available quantities are smaller than the requirements of men, end quote. That is, in modern terms, when they cease to be superabundant or free goods. Consider armed forces controlled by the state. First, is it plausible to claim that individual citizens have command of such supposedly defensive forces in a way that satisfies, or even attempts to satisfy, those citizens' individual preferences regarding protection? No. Even in a democratic state with universal suffrage, it is clear that military and naval decisions are usually made by a handful of men, often in secret, with little thought of the wishes of the average citizen. In fact, sometimes those armed forces have been used against the very citizens who are taxed to pay for them. Second, is it true that national defence is a collective good because it is some monolithic whole, which must be supplied in toto or not at all? No, it, quote, consists of specific resources committed in certain definite and concrete ways. A ring of defence bases around New York, for example, cuts down the amount possibly available around San Francisco, end quote. The only things that are truly collective are those which are superabundant, such as air, and therefore not economic goods at all. Some might respond to the last point by claiming that, despite the obviously finite magnitude of both the human and non-human resources used by government forces, national defence nevertheless does represent equal protection for all, in the sense that there is a perpetual commitment to resist aggression against any part of the nation. But that is false, and the American Civil War is clear evidence of this error in reasoning. Union forces would have done nothing to protect the Confederate States if, say, the government of France had attacked them. Instead, the French would have been viewed as allies in the subjugation of the southern traitors. 
intervention from abroad would only have been resisted by the North if it was accompanied by a demand that the southern states, once defeated, would become a possession of that foreign power. And one cannot escape by claiming that the Confederacy was viewed as a separate nation, and therefore not owed protection. The North consistently maintained that the Confederacy was an unlawful entity, along the lines of a criminal gang, not a sovereign nation. In short, governmental protection against aggression is never guaranteed, but instead may change with political conditions. In no sense, then, does national defence necessarily imply equal protection for all areas and all persons. True defence, though its effects may be widespread, is microeconomic in nature. This is essentially the position Hopper has taken recently. He rejects the Hobbesian myth of collective security provided by a sovereign state, and argues instead that true protection against aggression can be effectively provided only by private insurers and their agents. The proper boundaries of different security risk zones are the boundaries of private property ownership, because aggression is motivated by the desire to control that which has value, persons and their property. Thus, the provision of security must not be homogenized into one product for all, but differentiated and tailored to the specific needs of specific property owners. Moreover, the incentives of private defensive agencies will be to offer ever better services at ever lower prices. In contrast, quote, under monopolistic auspices, the price of justice and protection must rise, and its quality must fall. A tax-funded protection agency is a contradiction in terms, and will lead to ever more taxes and less protection, end quote. Or, to use Menger's terminology, which Hopper does not do, Governmental defense agencies actually supply imaginary goods. It is widely believed that, to be effective, defense must be a function of the state. However, there is no clear causal relationship between the state's appropriation of this function and true protection. Modern states may claim to protect their citizens from aggression, but they do less and less as time goes on. Even worse, by means of oppressive laws and regulations, states systematically expropriate property and deprive their own citizens of, quote, the very foundation of all protection, economic independence, financial strength, and personal wealth, end quote. Much of what is done in the name of public safety is, in reality, endangering and impoverishing the public. For many years, lighthouses were cited right along with national defence as an allegedly clear-cut example of a public good that required the involvement of government. Then, Ronald H. Coase took the time to investigate the actual history of lighthouse operation in that nation where maritime issues have probably played a greater role than in any other, Great Britain. He found that the building and operating of lighthouses by private firms was quite common. 
By 1820, for example, 34 of the 46 lighthouses then in operation had been built by private individuals. Owners of these structures gained their revenue from fees paid by shipowners, the beneficiaries of the service. Nevertheless, by 1842, Parliament had eliminated all private ownership of lighthouses. Was this because private lighthouses were badly run? No. This change was affected due to lobbying from the shipowners, who hoped that the fees they paid would be reduced or eliminated if the government ran the lighthouses. Coase concludes that, quote, economists should not use the lighthouse as an example of a service which could only be provided by the government, end quote. If the lighthouse is not, in fact, a public good, might the same be true of national defence? Theoretical reasons for thinking so have already been provided. The remainder of this effort will, in emulation of Coase, explore the historical evidence on privateering, a form of maritime national defence provided by profit-seeking private firms. Basics of Privateering The history of privateers goes back to the early Middle Ages. Originally, it was a method by which a citizen of one nation who had been victimized by a citizen of another nation could achieve restitution for his losses. With a permit issued by his government, the offended party could arm one of his ships and go searching for merchant ships flying the flag of the perpetrator's nation. If he encountered such a vessel and was able to subdue her, He could then sell the ship and its cargo at auction and pocket the proceeds. The first permit of this kind, which was known as a letter of mark and reprisal throughout the several centuries of privateering activity, was issued in Tuscany in the 12th century. By the end of the 14th century, they were common throughout the Mediterranean. The use of letters of mark and reprisal in England dates from the year 1243. Although begun as a system of effecting private restitution on the high seas, and thus employed whether or not a state of war existed between the two nations, privateering evolved into an instrument of war. By the 19th century, letters of mark, quote, were issued only in time of war to supplement the public vessels of the respective navies, end quote. Many naval historians have downplayed the role of privateers in favour of the deeds of public navies. Nevertheless, one should certainly not infer that privateers played only a trivial role during wartime. For example, Elizabethan England was, quote, almost totally dependent upon the private initiative and individual enterprise of its privateering establishment, end quote. Indeed, the sheer magnitude of such activity was remarkable. The American colonies of Britain commissioned 113 privateers during King George's War of 1744-48 and 400-500 during the Seven Years' War, of 1756 to 63. During the American Revolution, both sides freely employed privateers. Despite having a large public navy, the British commissioned at least 700 such vessels, 94 from Liverpool alone, 
while the American secessionists sent about 800 to sea in search of prizes. The War of 1812 saw 526 American vessels commissioned as privateers, although only about half that number actually went to sea. Between July of 1812 and January of 1815, even the small maritime communities in the Canadian provinces of New Brunswick and Nova Scotia contributed 47 privateers to the war effort, but on the side of the British, of course. Thomas Jefferson articulated the importance of privateers quite well when, in 1812, he declared that, quote, every possible encouragement should be given to privateering in time of war with a commercial nation. Our national ships are too few in number to retaliate the acts of the enemy. By licensing private armed vessels, the whole naval force of the nation is truly brought to bear on the foe, end quote. Historian Faye M. Kurt offers the judgment that, quote, without the persistence of the American privateers in the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812, the United States would never have been able to hold off the British Navy, end quote. It will surprise those who are enamored of the state monopoly of defense, but during the period of Western European history from 1600 to 1815, privateers, quote, probably contributed much more than warships to the actual harm done the enemy, end quote. In discussion of this topic, one will encounter two terms that can be a source of confusion, privateer and letter of mark. In the maritime community, these came to mean ships with somewhat different functions. A privateer was a ship whose primary and often sole function was to seek out and capture vessels of the enemy nation. A letter of mark was a ship the primary function of which was the transportation of cargoes, but which was sufficiently well armed to capture foreign vessels, if conditions permitted. Both were authorized to act as they did by the letters of mark and reprisal they had been issued, but privateers were usually smaller, more heavily armed, faster, and more maneuverable than the letters of mark, and were manned by larger crews. The possible confusion, of course, lies in the fact that, depending on context, letters of mark can mean either the document permitting this general sort of activity, or a ship whose owner intends for her to engage in only limited commerce raiding. For rather obvious reasons, the primary concern will be with privateers. Financing and manning a privateer. It should be recognized that both profit and patriotism usually motivated the actions of those who invested in, or served as part of the crew of, a privateer. Evidence of the patriotism can be found in the facts that some privateers fought instead of running away, their usual tactic, when they were cornered by an enemy warship, and some destroyed enemy shipping even when no profits were to be gained. Nevertheless, it was clear that, as normal commercial activity diminished during wartime, the incentive for merchants and shipowners to maintain some degree of prosperity via privateering did increase. 
For example, as a result of the British Navy's blockade during the War of 1812, imports into the United States fell from a pre-war total of 139 million in 1807 to 77 million in 1812 and 14 million in 1814. By the fall of 1813, marine insurance rates became prohibitively expensive, reaching 50% of the total value of the ship plus her cargo. This stagnation of commerce served to intensify greatly the building and outfitting of privateers in ports like Baltimore, New York, and Boston, because such vessels were undeterred by the blockade. One contemporary observer said that privateers, quote, go where they please, they chase and come up with everything they see, and run away at pleasure, end quote. And the inverse relationship between ordinary commercial activity and the provision of privateers was not uniquely American. During the earlier American Revolution, the British House of Lords publicized the fact that, as of 1778, Britain had lost the alarming total of 559 commercial vessels to American raiders. Liverpool was particularly hard hit, experiencing large declines in imports, shipping tonnage, the standard of living, and even population. This, too, elicited a boost in privateering on the part of British entrepreneurs. Whatever the motivation in any specific case, privateering required a significant investment. In Baltimore during the War of 1812, the total cost of building a schooner of about 200 tons, the most common rig and size for privateers, outfitting her, arming her, and providing a crew, was at least $40,000 in 1813 prices. In today's prices, that would be equivalent to $400,000 or more if one uses official wholesale price indices. A different and probably more meaningful figure is the $1.5 million it took in 1988 to build the Pride of Baltimore II, an exact replica of this type of vessel. For a British example, one might take the Liverpool privateer Enterprise of 1779, which was built, outfitted, manned, and operated for about a year at a total cost of slightly more than £7,000 sterling, or about $35,000. Such sums usually required that there be a number of investors, with each one providing perhaps $1,000 to $4,000, depending on the size of the ship. The investors functioned as partners, either general or limited, with ownership in the venture measured in shares. In Canada, it was customary to divide ownership into 60 fourths, so that the partners could readily diversify by investing relatively small monetary amounts in each of several vessels. In the United States, there seemed to be no standard method of setting the number of ownership shares. One finds ownership divided into thirds, fourths, sixths, eighths, thirtieths, and fiftieths, among other possibilities. The British Enterprise, mentioned above, had ten owners, with shares divided into sixteenths. Although those with maritime business interests were the most common source of investors, 
ownership of privateers was actually quite varied in terms of occupation. Among the owners of one Baltimore vessel, one finds four sea captains, four merchants, three manufacturers, two bakers, three grocers, one shipbuilder, one blacksmith, two paint store proprietors, and one physician. It was not enough to build and outfit a vessel for privateering activity. One also had to post a bond in order to guarantee compliance with international laws of the sea. The intent was to make sure that privateers did not degenerate into pirates. Such letters of mark or surety bonds were usually in the amount of either $5,000 or $10,000 in the United States, depending on the size of the ship. Canadian privateers faced bonds of either 1,500 or 3,000 pounds sterling, depending on the size of the crew, or about 7,500 to $15,000. The performance of the crew of a privateer, especially that of a captain and his lieutenants, was crucial to success. However, the owners of privateers rarely seem to have suffered from shirking on the part of the crew members they employed. The reason is straightforward. The sailors received no pay when there were no prizes. Much like the owners, the crews were residual claimants, whose income rose or fell with the success or failure of the crews, for their compensation was in terms of shares in the venture, not in terms of a wage rate. This was a thoroughly incentive-based system, in which the officers and crew often received one-half of all the proceeds generated by the sale of captured ships and their cargoes, the other half being received by the owners. Moreover, there were numerous rewards for exemplary service. A crewman who was first to sight a ship that was later taken as a prize, or who was the first to board a prize in the heat of battle, or who lost a limb in the course of his duties, received one or more extra shares. On the other hand, any man who mutinied or deserted lost all his shares. In short, Privateering offered the chance of much higher incomes than sailors were accustomed to earning by serving on ordinary merchant ships. In the early 19th century, the typical monthly wage for a merchant seaman was about $30. In a detailed survey of nine different American privateers and their prize distributions, Garrity found the average value of one share to be about $150. Since most crewmen earned from two to four shares... This meant that in the typical privateer cruise of three months, a man might earn the equivalent of 18 months' wages, and sometimes even more. Moreover, the payments to privateers' crews were usually made soon after the return to port. Indeed, maritime prize courts were always known for their extraordinary dispatch, being held close to the wharves for the convenience of mariners. In addition to the potential for large and rapidly distributed monetary earnings, the provision of food and drink on board privateers was usually plentiful, whereas it was merely adequate on public naval vessels. Indeed, most owners seem to have been actively concerned with the welfare of their crews. The owners of one late 18th century British privateer instructed the commander of their vessel to, quote, take particular care that your crew be treated humanely, that everyone be made to do their duty with good temper, as harmony, 
a good lookout, and steady attention to the main point are all absolutely necessary to be attended to, the success of the cruise greatly depending upon it. End quote. It should be no surprise that serving on a privateer was often much more popular than naval service. Quote, compared to the relatively free and easy life of privateering, life aboard a naval vessel must have seemed grim and oppressive. End quote. Desperate during wartime, the British Royal Navy, like other navies around the world, often resorted to actual abduction in order to man its ships. This notorious practice of impressment, when applied to American seamen, was a catalyst for the War of 1812. In contrast, the captains of private armed vessels either advertised for seamen themselves or used recruiting agents to supply them with crews. These recruiting agents, who were often the owners of grog shops or boarding houses near the waterfront, provided the seamen with personal loans, food, clothing, and lodging. Payment for such goods and services was commonly achieved by the sailor by assigning part of his prize tickets to the agent. A prize ticket was a document identifying the crew member, his ship, and how many shares he was due to receive upon completion of the privateer's cruise. Thus, one can see that the sailor's purchases from the agents were affected by what was, in essence, a transfer of equity shares. But to possess a prize ticket a sailor first had to sign the ship's Articles of Agreement. These Articles of Agreement constituted a fairly standardized labor contract between the crew members and the owners of the ship. Although the details varied a bit from case to case, certain basics were found in all such documents. The Articles declared the owners responsible for arming and equipping the vessel, stipulated how command would be transferred in the case of the captain's death, specified the tour of duty, usually three months for American privateers, often six months for British, identified the beneficiary of each man, to whom his shares would go in the event of his death, and outlined the bases upon which a crew member would be rewarded with extra shares. Quote, Before the privateer left port, the articles were read aloud, and each man signed or made his mark, legally binding himself for the cruise. End quote. After the privateer had been built, and while the owners were outfitting that vessel and recruiting a crew, they had to request authorization from their government in order to begin raiding the enemy's commercial vessels. Unless, of course, they did not mind being branded as pirates. That authorizing document, known formally as a letter of mark and reprisal, but often referred to as a privateer's commission, included some key information. Typically, one would find statements of the tonnage and rig of the privateering vessel, her armament, cannon, the number of men in her crew, and the names and addresses of each of her owners. Unfortunately, some of these items are missing from the surviving documents. Quote, Such data was often unavailable because the vessel's preparation was incomplete at the time of the application. End quote. It is correct to infer from this that the process of outfitting and commissioning was, in all countries, often undertaken with considerable haste. Garrity found, for example, that Baltimore privateers usually had to wait no more than a few days to receive their commissions. Regarding the maritime provinces of Canada, 
Kurt reports that within only weeks of the declaration of war in 1812, quote, shipyards bristled with new craft on the stocks, end quote, and many existing ships were quickly sent on cruises against the ships of the United States. For their part, it took the Americans in the cities of Salem, Baltimore, and New York no more than four months to have operating privateer fleets of 40, 40, and 50 vessels, respectively. Laws and Customs of Prize-Taking Although they have often been castigated for being little better than common pirates, the great majority of privateers, in fact, were characterized by, quote, a decent, civilized greed, like sportsmen, privateers played by a code of rules, end quote. Nevertheless, deception was an essential part of commerce raiding. Privateers usually carried several sets of false papers, as well as a number of different national flags. When first sighting a potential victim, and so as not to frighten her away, privateers would display the national flag of the sighted ship, or a flag of some ally of that nation. Despite this initial ruse, they never fired a gun under false colours. That is, privateer captains were careful never actually to engage in combat without flying the flag of their own nation. True pirates violated that principle with regularity. Both the form and goal of combat for privateers were usually different from that found with public naval vessels. The goal was capture rather than destruction. Such an approach transferred ownership, but left the property intact. It is almost certain that it also resulted in fewer deaths than did the naval approach. Instead of inflicting massive damage on the enemy ship's hull and rigging via heavy broadsides of cannon fire, the privateer sought to do only minor damage. She would then range alongside and send her large crew to take possession after subduing the prize's much smaller crew in hand-to-hand -hand combat, if indeed the prize's crew resisted at all. This helps to explain why, even though a few were as heavily armed as a naval frigate, most privateers carried only a small number of cannon. Indeed, in the early 19th century, the privateers from New York and Boston often only had one, or none at all in some cases. It also makes it clear why privateers carried such large crews. Twenty to twenty-five men would have been sufficient to handle the sails and man the few cannon, but it was not uncommon for privateers to have crews of a hundred and twenty or even more. After a privateer or a letter of mark had taken possession of an enemy ship, the next order of business was to put a prize crew aboard and sail that ship to either some port of the privateer's home country or, if that was impossible, to some port of a friendly nation that was at war with the same enemy. For an example of the latter, during the War of 1812, some American privateers took their prizes to Norway. This need for prize crews constituted yet another reason for the large crews typically carried by privateers. If one of these private armed vessels was particularly successful, her original complement of men could be depleted very quickly. Fortunately, there was a customary way of minimizing that depletion of manpower, the process of ransom. A ransom was a binding contract between the owners of a captured ship and the privateer, 
and by the late 18th century it was widely recognized as a legitimate alternative to the destruction or condemnation of the prize. In other words, instead of being sunk or confiscated by the privateer, the captured vessel could sometimes buy its freedom at the discretion of its captor. If the prize appeared to be of relatively little market value, if the privateer could not spare a prize crew, or if the privateer had no space for additional prisoners, it was worthwhile for the privateer to accept ransom. This took the form of a promissory note or bill of exchange, payable upon presentation to the prize's owners. American privateers of the War of 1812 seem commonly to have accepted ransoms of either $2,500 or $5,000. Once ransomed, a ship was immune from subsequent capture by other privateers during the time it took her to sail to the port and over the route stipulated in the ransom contract. The ship's captain also was required to sign a personal bond, which promised payment just in case the owners defaulted. Such defaults were very rare, however. Quote, a merchant ship owner who didn't pay his written obligations simply couldn't trade in foreign ports in the future, or his vessels would be seized there by his creditors, end quote. For privateers, ransom served the very useful purpose of reducing the need to a. send prize crews on every captured vessel, and b maintain large numbers of prisoners on board. These two benefits served to extend the effective cruising ranges of such private armed vessels. During the Revolutionary War, American privateers were wreaking havoc on British shipping. In 1782, in order to reduce those privateers' effectiveness, the British government prohibited the practice of ransoming by any ship flying the British flag. Despite this prohibition, ransom contracts accepted by British merchant ships could still be enforced in the maritime courts of other nations. And the practice, being in fact beneficial to both parties, did continue. For example, there were at least 30 known instances of ransom given by British ships during the War of 1812. If the privateer did not accept a ransom contract, and he usually did not, then whatever revenue was earned came from the liquidation of the captured ship and its cargo. This required formal adjudication in what was known as an admiralty court or a prize court, because prizes were technically the property of the state, from whose legal rights the claims of the captor were derived. Prize cases were called libels, and the legal seizure of the ship and its cargo was a condemnation. The decree of condemnation was of crucial importance to the privateer. To obtain such a decree, there had to be sufficient evidence that the captured vessel was owned in a country with which one's nation was at war. If this could not be demonstrated, then it might be said that the privateer had committed an act of piracy. Two basic types of evidence were relied upon regarding this issue. The court could consider either documents found on board the captured vessel or personal testimony. The relevant documents might include the vessel's clearing certificates, issued just prior to sailing by customs house officials at the port from which she had departed, cargo manifests, or instructions to the captain from the owners. The principal testimony was that given by the officers and crew of the captured ship. 
It should be noted that the ruling of the prize court was not automatic. The critical question concerned the nationality of the captured vessel, and this was often in doubt. During a war, many merchant ships carried fake documents for the express purpose of deceiving the enemy's naval vessels and privateers. The judges in prize courts tried mightily to sort out the evidence and render a fair decision. Although each decision was made based on the specifics at hand, certain broad principles were followed. If it was found that the captured ship, quote, was not a good prize, but that the captor had probable cause for suspicion, the captive was immediately released, and the parties went their separate ways. If, however, it was found that the captor's suspicions were unwarranted, the captive was entitled to immediate release, and to a judgment for damages against the captor, end quote. Once the ship was declared a lawful prize, the court issued the decree of condemnation, and she and her cargo would be sold at auction. However, the gross proceeds from that sale were not received by the privateer. Three deductions first had to be made. Small percentages went to the auctioneer, the marshal, and the clerk of the court as payment for their services. A further, much larger deduction was also necessary. Since the goods that made up the prize's cargo now represented imports, customs duties were imposed. Although the magnitude of these duties varied with the nature of the goods, Garrity estimates that during the War of 1812, such taxes usually reduced the revenue accruing to the American privateers by 30 to 40 percent. The owners of privateers protested so angrily against these high duties that, in August of 1813, Congress reduced the taxes on imported prize goods by one-third. British and American prize courts operated in very similar ways, even after the American Revolutionary War. And yet, during the earlier period of letter-of-mark activity, British privateers, including, of course, those outfitted in Britain's American colonies, were confronted with deductions from the gross prize proceeds that included not only court costs and import duties, but also a share for the crown. This share varied from one-half to one-tenth. Due to the growing economic importance and political influence of privateers, the crown's share was gradually reduced and in 1708 was eliminated altogether. As a result, privateer profits increased by as much as 30%. Profitability Right at the outset, one important point should be stressed. At least in principle, there should be a strong, positive relationship between the profitability of privateering and its effectiveness as a facet of national defence. Successful harassment of the enemy meant that many prizes were being taken, and a large number of prizes meant high revenues. But then, high revenues do not necessarily translate into high profits. If one reflects on the considerable uncertainty involving privateers, they might return to port without capturing a single prize, or worse, they might themselves be captured, or sunk by the enemy, or wrecked in a storm. And the significant costs they faced, the initial investment, surety bonds, court fees, import duties, and so forth, 
one has to wonder whether they were generally profitable or not. One must keep in mind, for example, that 28% of all American and 21% of all Canadian privateers were either wrecked, destroyed, or captured during the War of 1812. Quote, the profitability of privateering is a nettlesome issue, but several scholars have determined that private armed warships did earn profits, end quote. During the mid-18th century, for instance, privateers from the American colonies appear to have enjoyed annual rates of return of 130 to 140 percent. In his very detailed study of privateering business during the War of 1812, Garrity found that 122 Baltimore vessels were either privateers or letter-of-mark traders. Of those, 48 undertook at least one privateering cruise. 28, or 58 percent, of the latter group were judged to have been financially successful, experiencing, by conservative estimate, an average profit rate of 200 percent. The average prize proceeds were $116,712 per privateer. Assuming that each vessel cost $40,000 ready for sea, as was cited earlier, then average return on equity was 192% for the six months it would take to build a vessel, outfit her, and send her on a three-month cruise. Alternatively, one might think in terms of average payment to the owners per captured prize. For American privateers, this was about $13,500. Therefore, any private armed ship that captured at least four prizes was likely to achieve positive profits. By that measure, some of the more successful ones must have been fabulously profitable. In her four cruises, the Canadian Liverpool Packet captured 50 American ships. Purchased at auction in 1811 for £420 sterling, Liverpool Packet probably brought her owners over £10,000 sterling in prize money. Working independently during the War of 1812, Chasseur and True-Blooded Yankee, two American ships, captured or destroyed 18 British ships in three months and 34 in a mere 37 days, respectively. The most successful privateer sailing out of Salem, Massachusetts, was the large ship-rigged America, which carried 24 guns and had a crew of 150 men. She captured 26 British ships, which sold for more than $1 million. It is certainly true that some privateers returned to port without having taken a single prize. But the average number of prizes taken in the War of 1812 by the private armed ships of Canada and the United States appears to have been at least six each. Certain European privateers also seem to have done extraordinarily well. In 1756, the British Anson captured 16 French vessels, and it was said of her that she brought her owners a return of 5,000%. During the Napoleonic Wars, the French corsair Émilie took four rich British prizes that netted the equivalent of $700,000. Indeed, French privateering was considered so respectable and was usually so profitable that the Catholic bishops of Saint-Malo and Nantes were known to be investors in such enterprises. 
instead of focusing on the returns to specific cruises, returns to projects in modern times, one might prefer to focus on the investors. Here, it is important to distinguish between those who provided funds repeatedly and those who owned shares in no more than two or three privateers. The former had diversified their assets fairly well, while the latter had not. Of the 50 active Baltimore investors during the War of 1812, fully 80% profited from their involvement with privateering. One of the most successful was Arnold Carthouse, who owned large shares of several ships. By the end of the war, quote, his total personal share of his vessel's prize proceeds was over $200,000, end quote. There were, however, about 200 different people in Baltimore who invested in privateering on at least one occasion. Of this aggregate, 45% profited, 34% experienced losses, and the extant records for the remaining 21% are ambiguous. One might be tempted to think that financial losses were the automatic result of a privateer being captured, destroyed, or wrecked. And it is true that, in the case of Baltimore, 55 of the 122 vessels that held letters of mark and reprisal were lost during the War of 1812. However, quote, many had paid for themselves several times before they were lost, so a vessel's loss did not necessarily mean a financial loss on the owner's books, end quote. From the foregoing, it seems clear that privateering was usually profitable, sometimes dazzlingly so. In other words, whenever a state of war existed, entrepreneurs had ample motive to supply private armed ships. However, the strategic issue is damage to the enemy. Were privateers effective? Did they contribute significantly to the war effort? Effectiveness On this issue, one will find both summary judgments of their impact, a few of which were noted earlier, and data about the magnitude of their effects. One could begin with the Canadian privateers of the War of 1812. 47 held letters of mark and reprisal, but 10 of those captured no prizes at all. The remaining 37 were credited in prize courts with the proceeds from 228 American ships. However, since ships taken as prizes were often either lost at sea or intercepted by the privateers or naval vessels of the enemy before they reached port, it is likely that the total of American merchant ships taken by these Canadian privateers was close to 600. It should come as no surprise then that, from an American perspective, quote, the privateers of New Brunswick and Nova Scotia provided a major incentive for peace, end quote. By far the most renowned of these was the Liverpool Packet, which hailed from Liverpool, Nova Scotia. She became so feared that just the rumor of her presence along the northeast coast of the United States was enough to drive commercial vessels back into their home ports. It was for this reason that, late in 1812, quote, the American House of Representatives debated the possibility of cutting a canal through Cape Cod as a less costly alternative to losses through commerce raiding, end quote. The impact of private armed ships on European affairs seems to have been no less significant. French privateers from the ports of Saint-Malo, Nantes, Le Havre, Cherbourg, Calais, and Dunkirk 
have been active since the 13th century. Furthermore, they consistently inflicted large losses on France's enemies. In the conflict with Holland and Spain, 1672-79, privateers captured not less than 1,300 Spanish and Dutch ships. In the course of that war, one of the more renowned of French privateer captains, Jean Bart, alone took prizes that, quote, amounted to a total of 81, of which 14 were men of war or well-armed merchantmen, end quote. A decade later, the War of the League of Augsburg, 1689-97, broke out. The principal privateering city, San Malo, sent out 40 or 50 raiders each year of the war, and these vessels captured, quote, no less than 3,384 English and Dutch merchant ships and 162 escorting men of war, end quote. The War of the Spanish Succession, 1701-13, saw French privateers scourging the English Channel, as well as roaming to Ireland, Portugal, and Rio de Janeiro in search of prizes. They captured or destroyed more than 1,000 ships belonging to the English or Dutch. During the War of the Austrian Succession, 1740-48, 765 English merchant ships fell victim to French privateers. The Seven Years' War offers an illustration of both the effectiveness of privateers and the ineffectiveness of public navies. Quote, in the year 1757, the activity of the French privateers was phenomenal. They cruised so thick round the island of Antigua that it was next to a miracle for any English vessel to get in there, except under convoy, end quote. And in just the first 14 months of the war, private French ships captured 637 British vessels. Part of the reason for the amazing success of the French was the lack of effort by the British Navy. Many of the, quote, commanders of the king's ships appear to have been shamefully lax in the unpleasant duty of convoying merchant vessels and in pursuing the privateers of the enemy, end quote. Perhaps the apex of French privateering came during the first few years of the Napoleonic Wars. According to Lloyds of London, between 1793 and 1797, the English lost, quote, no less than 2,266 vessels, a large portion of which were captured by the Corsairs, end quote. To grasp just how accustomed to success the French privateers were, one should note that 1781 was considered a particularly lean year. In that year, they captured only 305 English vessels. Commerce raiding by private armed ships was practiced for centuries in Europe, but nowhere was privateering undertaken more enthusiastically and energetically than in the United States. And in no American war was privateering more important than during the War of 1812. The damage done to British shipping was, quite simply, enormous. One Baltimore newspaper of the time estimated that at least 1,750 British ships had been captured. Modern research by a careful student of American privateering has put the estimate between 1,300 and 2,500. 
Another recent writer has said that the British Merchant Marine lost 2,500 ships, with the majority captured by privateers. Quote, even a maritime establishment as large as Britain's in 1815 could not ignore such figures, nor enjoy the prospect of greater losses at sea if the war were extended another year or more. End quote. Englishman Gomer Williams conveyed the impact and importance of privateering in the following terms. Quote, American privateers swept the Atlantic and even penetrated within a few leagues of the mouth of the Mercy. The merchants and shipowners of Liverpool, instead of fitting out private armed vessels with the energy that had characterized them in former days, put their trust in the Lord's Commissioners of the Admiralty and found too late that the King's cruisers, like the modern policemen, were too often absent from the spot where their services were most required. The depredations of the American privateers on the coasts of Ireland and Scotland at length produced so strong a sensation at Lloyd's that it was difficult to get policies underwritten except at enormous rates of premiums, end quote. It is interesting to compare the aggregate record of the U.S. Navy during the War of 1812 with that of the American privateers. The public warships captured or destroyed 165 British merchant ships, while the private armed vessels took from 1,300 to 2,500, as noted above. Furthermore, as larger and more heavily armed privateers were employed late in the war, their rate of success rose even higher. Over the last year and a half of the war, privateers took prizes at the rate of almost two per day. Also, one should note that, in combat with the British Navy, which was their primary function, the American Navy seized or destroyed 15 British warships. American privateers took an additional three British warships, even though such combat was something for which they were not usually intended. Data from the American Revolutionary War reveals a somewhat similar disparity between private and public armed ships. The ships of the Continental Navy tallied 196 British prizes, while the privateers are credited with at least 600. Moreover, as the war progressed, the number of active privateers increased from 136 in 1776 to 449 in 1781, before declining to 323 in 1782. During the same years, the number of actively public warships decreased from 31 to 9 to 7, respectively. It would seem, in other words, that the British Navy did succeed in stifling the efforts of the public American Navy, at the same time that it stimulated ever more intense efforts by those willing to invest in private armed ships. One can, with some justice, respond to the above comparisons by pointing out that such aggregated figures may possibly disguise almost as much as they reveal. The ideal comparison might be one where the relative effectiveness of naval vessels and privateers could be tested under the same conditions. History rarely provides such controlled experiments, and the history of privateering is no different. Fortunately, however, this writer has found one notable example. In the early 19th century, there was considerable trade between Russia and Great Britain. 
To maintain their huge navy, the British badly needed the timber, tar, turpentine, pitch, cordage, and other naval stores that Russia could supply. Both the U.S. Navy and American privateering entrepreneurs realized the strategic importance of this trade, and both tried to disrupt it. In the summer of 1813, three American vessels operated in the North Sea, above the Arctic Circle, in search of merchant ships involved in Russo-British trade. The Navy sent the frigate President, sister ship of the famous Constitution, and as powerful as anything the Americans possessed, of 1,576 tons, with 52 guns and 460 men. Entrepreneurs sent the schooner Scourge of 248 tons, with 15 guns and 110 men, and the brig Rattlesnake of 297 tons, with 16 guns and 130 men. All three cruised the same waters at the same time and with the same goal. The results were markedly different, however. The president burned only a single brig carrying pitch and tar. Combined, the scourge and rattlesnake captured or destroyed at least 23 merchant ships, many of them being large, square-rigged, ocean-going vessels. Indeed, American privateers were so good at what they did that, by the winter of 1813-14, to 14, they constituted, quote, the nation's only effective offensive maritime force. Unlike the National Navy, Baltimore's private navy had not been driven from the sea by the British, end quote. Conclusion Privateering provided profitable opportunities to shipowners and merchants whose revenues from normal commercial activity were greatly diminished due to the state of war. Privateering also provided an effective means of waging war by disrupting the flow of essential goods to the enemy nation. Why, then, did privateering more or less come to an end in the middle of the 19th century? Was privateering an archaic practice that remained viable only as long as there were sail-driven wooden ships carrying muzzle-loading cannon? The answer to the latter question is no. The reason is twofold. First, quote, technological advantages played absolutely no immediate direct role in the demise of privateering. Privateering essentially ended before the American Civil War. The major changes in naval technology all occurred later. End quote. Second, commerce raiding has continued to be an important facet of naval warfare to the modern day. One might note, for example, that Germany employed surface raiders to great effect during both world wars. It is also intriguing to consider that the German submarine tactics of those wars, which inflicted so much damage on Allied shipping, may have been explicitly patterned after the methods of 18th and 19th century privateers. Of course, in those German cases, the raiders were public naval vessels for whom there was no profit incentive. Therefore, they destroyed the Americans' merchant ships and their cargoes instead of capturing them. Privateering was not a worthless anachronism. It was a powerful method by which maritime nations could discourage aggressors without indulging in the massive public expenditures needed to maintain a large public navy. 
Indeed, it was, on occasion, publicly acknowledged to be more effective than public navies. For example, during the Federalist era, many American congressmen were openly skeptical of having a tax-supported national navy because they thought private armed ships to be a superior option. The fact is that privateering disappeared precisely because it was so effective. Career naval officers feared and resented the competition it represented, and those few nations with large public navies wanted to make sure that smaller nations could not challenge their domination via the less costly alternative of private armed ships. These were the primary motives behind the Declaration of Paris, signed by seven maritime nations in 1856, which prohibited privateering by the signatories and greatly hastened its ultimate end. Privateering was, quote, less wasteful than other forms of naval combat because it did not destroy but merely reassigned ownership rights to property. The extinction of privateering was at least partly the result of rent-seeking by established government bureaucracies. Privateering was not a market that can be shown to have failed. Rather, it was one that was eliminated through political means. End quote. Historians, even those who specialize in legal or maritime issues, have paid rather little attention to privateering. Economists have almost entirely ignored it, which is particularly unfortunate. This topic offers insights into how private firms can supply defense services and it deserves to be investigated further. However, one thing seems clear already. The long, successful history of privateering disproves the claim that national defense is a public good, if one takes that claim to mean that governments must monopolize the market for defense. Appendix Verbatim text of an actual privateering commission, letter of mark and reprisal, issued by the government of the United States to the schooner Patapsco during the War of 1812. Quote, James Madison, President of the United States of America. To all who shall these presents, greeting. Be it known that, in pursuance of an act of Congress passed on the 18th day of June, 1812, I have commissioned, and by these presents do commission, the private armed schooner called the Patapsco of the burthen of 159 tons or thereabouts, owned by Andrew Clopper, Levi Hollingsworth, Amos A. Williams, and Henry Fulford of the city of Baltimore, mounting six carriage guns, and navigated by 40 men, hereby authorizing James M. Mortimer, captain, and William Ross, lieutenant of the said schooner Patapsco, and the other officers and crew thereof, to subdue, seize, and take any armed or unarmed British vessel, public or private, which shall be found within the jurisdictional limits of the United States or elsewhere on the high seas, or within the waters of the British dominions, and such captured vessel, with her apparel, guns, and appurtenances, and the goods and effects which shall be found on board the same, together with the British persons and others who shall be acting on board, to bring within some port of the United States, and also to retake any vessel, goods, and effects of the people of the United States, 
which may have been captured by any British armed vessel in order that proceedings may be had concerning such capture or recapture in due form of law, and as to right and justice shall appertain. The said James M. Mortimer is further authorized to detain, seize, and take all vessels and effects to whomsoever belonging, which shall be liable thereto according to the law of nations and the rights of the United States as a power at war, and to bring the same within some port of the United States in order that due proceedings may be had thereon. The commission to continue in force during the pleasure of the President of the United States for the time being. Given under my hand and seal of the United States of America and the city of Washington, the 17th day of September, in the year of our Lord, 1812, and of the independence of the said states, the 37. By President James Madison, James Monroe, Secretary of State. End quote. Chapter 8. The Will to be Free. The Role of Ideology in National Defense. By Jeffrey Rogers Hummel. The practical superiority of markets over governments has become readily apparent. Only the most dogmatic of state apologists continue to deny this obvious fact, at least with respect to the production of many goods and services. Free market economists and libertarians go much further, of course. They affirm the market's superiority in nearly all realms. Yet, only a handful of anarcho-capitalists, most notably Murray Rothbard, have dared claim that a free market could also do a better job at providing protection from foreign states. National defense is generally considered the most essential of all government services. This widely conceded exception to the efficacy of markets seems to have irrefutable empirical confirmation. If private defense is better than government defense, why has government kept winning over the centuries? Indeed, the state's military prowess has more than seemingly precluded the modern emergence of any anarcho-capitalist society. At one time, as far as we know, all humankind lived in stateless bands of hunter-gatherers, and had done so since the emergence of modern man some 50,000 years ago. But, beginning around 11,000 BC, a gradual transition to plant cultivation and animal husbandry, in what is variously identified as the Neolithic, food production, or agricultural revolution, fostered a steady increase in population densities. These denser, settled populations became susceptible to what the distinguished historian William H. McNeil has aptly termed microparasites and macroparasites. Microparasites are the assorted diseases and other pests that have constantly plagued civilization until the development of modern medicine. And macro-parasites are governments, which either arose through conquest or in reaction to the threat of conquest, until they now dominate every corner of the globe. 
Radical libertarians such as Rothbard explicitly acknowledge the historical triumph of governments over primitive stateless societies when they embrace the conquest theory of the state's origins. Yet this boxes them into an apparent paradox. How can they attribute the origins of government to successful conquest and simultaneously maintain that a completely free society without government could prevent such conquests? It is this paradox that will be addressed in the following pages. Doing so obviously hinges on establishing a crucial difference between the conditions that permitted governments to arise in the first place and those that would characterize a future free society. So, let us initially turn our attention to the first set of conditions, and ascertain exactly what about the agricultural revolution created such fertile soil for the growth of coercive monopolies. 1. Unlike the state, warfare predates the agricultural revolution. It was endemic among bands of hunter-gatherers, but it never led to permanent conquest. Why not? The explanation is simple enough. Hunters and gatherers could easily exit to new land. Quote, Where population densities are very low, writes Jared Diamond, as is usual in regions occupied by hunter-gatherer bands, survivors of a defeated group need only move farther away from their enemies, end quote. This option ceases to be viable only with the higher concentrations of population supported by food production. Quote, no doubt if tax and rent collectors pressed too heavily on those who worked the fields, admits William H. McNeil, the option of flight remained. But in practice, this was a costly alternative. It was rare indeed that a fleeing farmer could expect to find a new place where he could raise a crop in the next season, starting from raw land, and to go without food other than what could be found in the wild for a whole year was impractical. End quote. In other words, hunting and gathering tends to prevail when land is relatively abundant. Yet this very abundance condemned hunting and gathering to a Malthusian dilemma. Without any serious land scarcity, hunting-gathering societies had little incentive to establish or enforce clear property rights in natural resources. Population therefore expanded, subjecting this most basic form of production to diminishing marginal returns. The most extreme manifestation of the resulting over-utilization of common resources are the species extinctions that many authorities now attribute to primitive hunters. Such extinctions have their modern counterparts in the current inefficiency harvesting of whales and other resources from the commonly owned oceans. Whether humans were the primary agents in the disappearance of woolly mammoths and some 200 other species of large mammals in the late Pleistocene is still debated. 
but the lack of enforceable property rights in land indisputably created a free rider or negative externality problem among competing bands of hunters and gatherers that caused their numbers to steadily expand. At some point, the growing population drove returns to hunting and gathering so low that settled agriculture and animal husbandry became more productive. This change in relative productivity then provided incentives for the necessary innovations in plant cultivation and animal domestication. Thus, rising population densities became the most important cause and one of the most important consequences of the agricultural revolution. Migratory bands of scattered hunters and gatherers were supplanted by larger, relatively sedentary populations of farmers and herders. Property rights in land now emerged as the spread of agriculture made this resource increasingly scarce. At the same time, however, settled populations became increasingly vulnerable to both microparasites and macroparasites. Macroparasites could take the form of marauding raiders who merely plundered their victims and perhaps exterminated them. But, quote, adaption between host and parasite always tends toward mutual accommodation, end quote, as McNeil puts it. The most successful macroparasites were the warriors and rulers who stumbled into some kind of long-run equilibrium with their coerced subjects. They extracted enough resources through tribute and taxation to be able to ward off competing groups of macroparasites, but not so much that they killed off their host population. They, in short, usually operated within the range of the Laffer Curve's apex, for those rulers who seized too much or too little wealth often suffered military defeat at the hands of other rulers. In this fashion, egalitarian bands evolved, first into tribes, then into chieftains, and finally into hierarchical states. The free rider problem, long presented by economists as a normative justification for the state, is in reality a positive explanation for why the state first arose and persisted. All the earliest governments about which we have any knowledge had relatively small ruling classes, dependent upon wealth transfers from a much larger subject population. Why did not the more numerous subjects ever rise up and overthrow their masters? The free rider is the key. Revolutionary activity is always extremely risky, but nearly all subjects would benefit from a successful revolution, regardless of whether they participated in it or not. This remained an enormous obstacle to organizing the masses. Small, concentrated ruling classes, in contrast, faced fewer free-rider problems in carrying out their conquests. Therefore, the history of the state over the millennia from the agricultural revolution to the present has become an always dreary and sometimes horrific litany of special interests triumphantly coercing larger groups.
Numbers are not utterly irrelevant, however. All other things equal, bigger armies have an advantage over smaller ones. As governments continued the hallowed human tradition of waging war, they found it useful to motivate their subjects to fight for them. This helped bring about the oft-cited alliance between state and religion, between throne and altar, between Attila and the witch-doctor. All states promote some ideology, whether religious or secular, that legitimizes their rule. Legitimization makes the state's subjects more docile generally, but in particular provides more willing fodder for war. Quoting Diamond again, it, quote, gives people a motive other than genetic self-interest for sacrificing their lives on behalf of others, at the cost of a few society members who die in battle as soldiers, the whole society becomes much more effective at conquering other societies or resisting attack, end quote. Governments ruling over greater populations consequently could more easily defeat their rivals. Even today, it is fairly obvious who would win a war between Germany and Luxembourg, between China and Hong Kong, or between the United States and Grenada. Recall, moreover, that the state owes its origins to the rising populations of the agricultural revolution. When ancient governments intruded upon remnant bands of hunter-gatherers, the population difference was severe. Couple that with the devastating impact of the micro-parasitic diseases spawned and spread by denser agricultural societies on peoples not exposed long enough to develop some natural immunity, and the population difference became even more overwhelming. Whether it was the indigenous San, Bushmen, of South Africa, being driven into the marginal lands of the Kalahari Desert by the cattle-herding Bantu, or the Aboriginal Australians being decimated by the guns and diseases of the invading Europeans, stateless societies of hunter-gatherers were, for this reason, always displaced. 2. Population is obviously not the only factor influencing military outcomes. A casual perusal of the intermittent warfare that has characterized the long history of governments helps us identify several others. Wealth and technology are at least as important, with wealthier or more technologically advanced societies enjoying a clear advantage. This was another factor that worked against primitive stateless societies. The concentrated populations of the agricultural revolution also fostered the emergence of trade and cities, and the resulting mutual gains, as MacNeil observes, quote, are as much a part of the historic record as are the exploitation and lopsided taking, end quote, by governments. To this contemporaneous development of markets, we owe all the accoutrements of civilization. For centuries, MacNeil continues, quote, exchanges of goods and services, which were freely and willingly entered into by the parties concerned, flickered on and off, being perpetually liable to forcible interruption. 
Raiders from afar and rulers close at hand were both perennially tempted to confiscate rather than to buy. And when they confiscated, trade relations and voluntary production for market sale weakened or even disappeared entirely for a while. But market behavior always tended to take root anew because of the mutual advantages inherent in exchange of goods coming from diverse parts of the earth or produced by diversely skilled individuals. End quote. Over the long run, those governments that permitted trade, with its concomitant wealth creation and technological innovation, had more and better physical resources to devote to war. Geography is another determinant of war. Rivers, bodies of water, sea lanes and ocean barriers can play diverse roles in military manoeuvres. Some countries are endowed with more easily defensible terrain because of mountains, forests, deserts, disease environments, or other natural obstacles. The geographical unity of China, bound together by two long navigable river systems, partly hemmed in by high mountains and with a rather uniform coastline, has favoured both its political unity for much of the time since 221 BC and its vulnerability to the barbarian invasions of horse-mounted nomads. This stands in stark contrast to Europe, divided up by an irregular coastline, mountain ranges, and water obstructions that have left it politically, linguistically, and ethnically fragmented to this very day. The importance of geography is underscored by its role in the survival of a few isolated enclaves of hunter-gatherers well into the 20th century, long after the world's states had staked out their territorial claims to the planet's entire land surface. A final factor affecting warfare, as we have seen, is the motivation of the people themselves. Ideas ultimately determine in which direction they wield their weapons, or whether they wield them at all. Morale has not only affected military operations directly, but also has affected indirectly the capacity of governments to impose their rule. Much successful state conquest has been intermediated through local ruling classes who remain legitimized among the subject population. This is well exemplified in the case of British rule over India and the Spanish conquest of Mexico. The effective dominance of would-be conquerors who possess military superiority but face the implacable hostility of an ideologically united population is more problematic. The English hold on Ireland was, due to this factor, always tenuous, and one can find similar instances into the modern day. This is another advantage sometimes possessed by hunter-gatherers and primitive agriculturalists in their struggles with more centralized societies. Contrast Spain's fairly rapid conquest of the Indians of Central and South America, already habituated to indigenous state rule, 
with the much more drawn-out European campaigns against the North American Indians, who were slowly expropriated, expelled, and exterminated over several centuries, but never really fully subjugated until the 20th. We can analyse the waging of war, therefore, in a manner somewhat analogous to the economic analysis of production. The same three categories of productive factors, labour, human resources, land, natural resources, and capital goods, wealth and technology, serve as inputs into any military endeavour with the labour applied having both a quantitative dimension and a qualitative human capital dimension. The combatant who can marshal a greater input of any one of these factors, ceteris paribus, has a military advantage, although there will be numerous situations under which governments decide that actually allocating these resources to war is not worth the potential gain in territory and revenue. It would be nice if we could expand this analysis into a fully articulated theory, allowing us to predict the size and shape of states. Alas, we are not even close to such knowledge, but we nonetheless can detect some crucial relationships. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, no region of the globe experienced the sustained economic growth that has come to be expected nowadays as ordinary. Some places and times, perhaps ancient Rome, might have enjoyed a temporarily higher level of average wealth per person than others, but general economic stagnation, without any regular long-run increase in output per capita, remained the prevailing condition for thousands of years after the outset of the agricultural revolution. It was a stagnation, moreover, in which the state's expropriations, quote, tended to keep the peasant majority of civilized populations close to bare subsistence, end quote. Disparities among states in wealth and technology, above and beyond those that inevitably resulted from disparities in population, consequently played a secondary role in warfare. Only with the unprecedented economic advantages accompanying sustained growth did military capital become so decisive that it outweighed mere numbers and permitted handfuls of Europeans to subdue hordes of natives. It has now become an almost commonplace observation that the Industrial Revolution first erupted in Western civilization because of Europe's political pluralism. In nearly all prior civilizations, imperial states came to encompass the entire area within which significant trade was conducted. Only in Europe did the trading area and a common culture extend beyond the borders of many small states, creating a truly polycentric legal order. The downside of Europe's political fragmentation was frequent and fratricidal wars that reached their fateful culmination in the mass destruction of the two world wars of the 20th century. But fortunately, every military attempt to consolidate the continent, whether by Philip II of Spain, Napoleon Bonaparte, or Adolf Hitler, proved abortive. 
The benefit of this competition among various jurisdictions was that it encouraged, like competition always does, innovation. In this case, the institutional innovations with regard to property and markets that were the prerequisites for capital accumulation and sustained growth. A simple way to model what happened is to conceive of long-run shifts in the Laffer curve. The short-run Laffer curve depicts the immediate trade-off between tax rates and tax revenue, or more broadly, between the state's rate of expropriation, aggregating all its exactations, and the total revenue it manages to extract from the economy. Only by reducing the expropriation rate well below what will generally maximize revenue can governments lay the preconditions for secular increases in output. Over time, ironically, this will shift the Laffer curve upward, so that even at the same expropriation rate, the government will capture more total revenue. Just as private savers must give up consumption in the present to gain more consumption in the future, governments have to give up revenue in the present in order to stimulate the growth that would make them wealthier and stronger in the future. In the intensely competitive political environment of Europe, some states were finally able to discover this formula for eclipsing their rivals. The same political competition has more recently exposed the utter economic failure of socialism. Without the dramatic comparison with the more prosperous West, the collectivist economies of the Soviet Union and China might have survived politically for eons, despite the inescapable increasing immiseration of the masses and retrogression to the stagnation of the ancient world. But competition among states cannot all by itself account for either the Industrial Revolution or the collapse of socialism. There also must be some mechanism that generates variation in government policies in the first place. And that brings us back to the realm of ideas, culture, and legitimization. What I am suggesting is a process of natural selection among states, similar to the natural selection among living organisms. Whereas genetic mutations cause the changes and adaptations that drive the evolution of living species, the decisive causal agent for governments is ideology. 3. Ludwig von Mises was the first to explain and predict the collapse of socialism. But this was just one part of his comprehensive utilitarian defense of laissez-faire. The other part was Mises's critique of what he called interventionism, or what economics texts used to refer to as the mixed economy, and what became known historically in Europe as social democracy. While central planning was incompatible with the prosperity wrought by the Industrial Revolution, a more limited welfare state was, in Mises's view, inherently unstable. Each specific government measure would cause such social disruption that it would either bring on further intervention or force its repeal. 
society would ultimately end up with either pure socialism or laissez-faire, and since of the two, only laissez-faire could support the living standards to which Europeans had become accustomed, the choice was obvious. Events proved Mises to have been absolutely right about central planning, but wrong about interventionism. Indeed, the truth about the client-centered, power-broker state is diametrically opposite Mises's prediction. Rather than being inherently unstable, it is the gravity well toward which both market and socialist societies sink. And public choice theory, which in Mises's terminology works out the praxeology of politics, has provided us with the reason. Because concentrated groups face fewer free-rider problems in seeking government transfers, they have an inordinate influence on policy. Today, just as was true at the dawn of civilization, the state's strongest incentives are to benefit special interests at the expense of the general public. Because of the rent-seeking that this incentive structure encourages, not only did Britain and the United States recede after 1900 from perhaps the apogee of limited government in world history, but also Russia's rulers had retreated in practice from the pure Marxist goal of abolishing all markets long before the Soviet Union's disintegration in 1991. The Brezhnev-era reign of the apparatchiks and nomenclatura was a far cry from the systematic central planning of Stalin's five-year plans, much less the fanatical assault on all monetary exchange of Lenin and Trotsky's war communism. The macro-parasitic governments in both cases had been extracting revenue well below the potential maximum of the short-run Laffer curve. And whereas Soviet special interests found that they could gain greater transfers with bribes, corruption, and other practices that in effect relaxed the government burden on the economy, the temptation for British and US rulers to exploit the short-run gains in revenue by moving up the Laffer curve was too great, even at the possible cost of long-run growth. Public choice analysis, however, is in the awkward position of raising an across-the-board theoretical obstacle to any changes that drive the economy off this social-democratic, neo-mercantilist midpoint. There must be some force causing the perturbations and oscillations in government policy, or else nearly all humankind would still be slaves, groaning under the pharaohs in Egypt. Most public choice theorists simply rely on such historical accidents as wars, revolutions, and conquests to sweep away existing distributional coalitions. But attributing changes to accident is simply saying the difference is unexplained. Quote, the economic historian who has constructed his model in neoclassical terms has built into it a fundamental contradiction, concedes Nobel Prize-winning economist Douglas C. North, since there is no way for the neoclassical model to account for a good deal of the change we observe in history. End quote. 
The missing variable is ideas. All successful states are legitimized. No government rules for long through brute force alone, no matter how undemocratic. Enough of its subjects must accept its power as necessary or desirable for its rule to be widely enforced and observed. But the very social consensus that legitimizes the state also binds it. Ideology, therefore, becomes the wild card that accounts for public-spirited mass movements overcoming the free rider problem and affecting significant changes in government policy. For ideology can motivate people to do more for social change than the material rewards to each individual would justify. Quote, casual observation confirms the immense number of cases where large group action does occur and is a fundamental force for change, end quote, writes North. Russia was driven to the excesses of Bolshevism by a secular ideology, not mere rent-seeking. At the other end of the spectrum, classical liberalism had to generate similarly potent ideological altruism that overcame free-rider disincentives in order to roll back coercive authority in many Western nations. We know even less about what causes ideas to succeed than we do about what determines the size and shape of government jurisdictions. The famed zoologist Richard Dawkins has offered the intriguing proposition that ideas have many striking similarities to genes. Many apparent paradoxes in biological evolution disappeared once biologists recognized that the process was driven by the success with which selfish genes, rather than individuals or species, could replicate themselves. Dawkins suggested the term memes be applied to ideas whose capacity to replicate in other minds likewise determines their spread. No matter how useful this parallel between cultural and genetic evolution may ultimately prove, it at least helps to disabuse us of the illusion that an idea's validity is the sole or primary factor in its success. Those who doubt that false ideas can be tremendously influential need only glance at the worldwide success of so many mutually exclusive religions. It is not simply that they cannot all be true simultaneously. If one is true, then many of the others are not simply false, but badly false. Or, to seize an example still closer to our topic, Observe the tremendous popularity of invalid ideas that legitimize the state among those whom the state exploits. Other things being equal, the truth of an idea might give it some advantage, but other things are rarely equal. The one consolation we can draw is that a meme-based theory implies that the spread of ideas is similarly independent of government. The state, for instance, appears to have played no part in the birth and initial growth of Christianity, and the draconian efforts that many governments devote to the suppression of dissent testifies to the threat posed by that kind of autonomous ideological development.
Successful ideas therefore can induce alterations in the size, scope, and intrusiveness of government. The steady advance of civilization presents a succession of such surmountings of the free rider obstacle. But the duration of any alterations have in turn rested on other factors, especially the intensity of the competition among states. Over the long run, only those changes in policy that helped a society survive were likely to endure. Even then, ideological altruism and rent-seeking remained in constant tension. Free-rider dynamics were always tending to unleash a process of decay, enfeebling a society's ideological sinews and ravaging its ideological immune system. Public choice theory puts real teeth into the famous maxim, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. 4. For most proposed reforms, policy issues can and should be separated from strategic issues. Whether the repeal of minimum wage laws would have desirable economic consequences, for instance, is distinct from the question of whether the repeal of minimum wage laws is politically attainable. But when considering protection services, this dichotomy breaks down. As I have pointed out elsewhere, protection from foreign governments is merely a subset of a more general service. Protection from any government whether we label it as foreign or domestic. The privatization of this service is tantamount to the abolition of the state. The territory constituting the United States is, in a very real sense, already conquered by the United States government. Only when Americans have liberated themselves from that conqueror will they have effectively denationalized defense. In other words, the policy question, can private alternatives provide more effective protection from foreign aggressors, and the strategic question, can any people mobilize the ideological muscle to smash the state, are intimately intertwined. Hence, it makes good sense to try to imagine what society would look like if minimum wages were repealed without any other change. But it makes far less sense to imagine what society would look like if government were abolished, and especially to ask how such a stateless society might protect itself without any other change. By the very act of overthrowing the domestic government, whether peacefully or forcibly, the former subjects were the forged powerful tools for protecting themselves from foreign governments. The same social consensus, the same institutions, and the same ideological imperatives that have gained them liberation from their own state would be automatically in place to defend against any other states that tried to fill the vacuum. So let us assume that in some country, somewhere, government has become so completely delegitimized that it ceases to exist. How might such a society fare militarily within a world of competing states? The result, it turns out, still depends on the same elements we listed above as determinants in military conflict, wealth and technology, geography, population, 
and motivation. With regard to wealth and technology, a modern stateless society would enjoy a major advantage. Not only will it achieve more rapid increases in economic output and technological improvement upon the ending of government macro-parasitism, but it should already have an economic edge because the most likely candidates for government abolition are countries where intervention is already minimal. The compounding effects of a higher growth rate will only enhance this potential superiority in military capital over time, so that a future free society may have as little to fear militarily from rival states as the United States currently has to fear from such economic basket cases as Mexico, India, or even Indonesia. Thus, what was one of the greatest weaknesses for hunter-gatherer communities will become one of the greatest strengths of anarcho-capitalist communities. Geographical endowments, in contrast, are pretty much a matter of serendipity, and could go either way. Population fits a similarly unpredictable pattern. A small anarcho-capitalist population will be more vulnerable than a large one. This is just a reflection of the sad fact of reality that how much government I suffer is affected by what my neighbours believe. Even arming myself with privately owned nuclear weapons is not a strategically wise way to protect myself from taxes, so long as most of my countrymen think taxes are just and necessary. But unlike bands of hunters and gatherers, a future free society will at least not inevitably suffer from a population disparity with respect to its statist neighbours. Nor need such a disparity be permanent if it does exist at the outset, once the fourth military determinant, motivation, is brought into play. A people who have successfully fabricated the ideological solidarity necessary to overthrow their domestic rulers would be extremely difficult to conquer, as we have already observed. Posing no threat of conquest themselves, they can tap into the sympathies of a foreign ruler's subjects better than any other opponents such rulers might take on. Would-be conquerors could find their own legitimization seriously compromised. Just as the American Revolution set off sparks that helped ignite revolutionary conflagrations in many other countries, a vibrant economy, free from all government, will arouse such admiration and emulation that it will surely tend to expand. In short, a future stateless society has the best prospects of working ideological dynamics, both internally and externally, to its benefit. To switch to Dawkins-esque terms, anarchy is a meme, which, if it were to take hold in one location, has indeed the potential to spread like wildfire. But we cannot leave the ideological factor on a totally optimistic note. The problem of achieving a free society is similar to the problem of maintaining one, but not absolutely identical. Ideological fervour has waxed and waned throughout history. 
I can offer no guarantee that, after several generations of liberty and abundance, a stateless community will never suffer the same kind of decay that has afflicted so many polities in the past. Ideological altruism is a hard motive to keep burning strong, even for a single lifetime. David Friedman has persuasively argued that anarchy will bring us to the right side of the public good trap. In other words, once government is gone, the underlying incentive structure is altered. People now individually gain the most from supporting good laws that produce net social benefits, rather than bad laws that provide transfers at the cost of deadweight loss. But Friedman's argument may implicitly require a resolute social consensus that prevents any reintroduction of taxation. Can such a consensus fend off all potential conquerors, foreign and domestic, forever? 5. Let us summarize. The state triumphed in the distant past over stateless bands of hunter-gatherers because of the favourable interaction of two major factors. The earliest governments, arising as a consequence of the agricultural revolution, could draw upon, one, the denser, more disease-resistant populations that food production supported, and two, the superior wealth and technology accompanying the appearance of trade and cities. Hunter-gatherers, even when they fought with steadfast morale, were easy prey, unless they also were shielded by inaccessible geography. Neither of these two factors, however, would necessarily handicap a future anarcho-capitalist society. The sustained economic growth that began with the Industrial Revolution has increased the leverage of wealth and technology in military conflict. Since there is an inverse relationship between the extent of government and the rate of economic growth, stateless societies would almost undoubtedly have an advantage in military capital. The population of any future community without government will admittedly vary with historical circumstances. The larger its population, the greater its ability to prevent conquest. But helping such a community both to resist invasion and to expand its area would be the motivation of its people. Settled agricultural populations were initially vulnerable to state conquest because of the free rider problem. Large groups always face tremendous obstacles in overcoming the disincentives to organize and affect government policy. Yet the accumulation of ideological capital over the centuries and the successful instances of curtailed state power show that this problem is not decisive. Any movement powerful enough to abolish a standing government in the modern world has demonstrated thereby its ability to motivate a high order of ideological altruism. It would certainly be a meme capable of international propagation. Everything said, the human species may still be unable to rid the earth of macro-parasitic states, just as it may never eliminate all micro-parasitic diseases. 
But the possibility that disease is inevitable would never be entertained as an adequate justification for abandoning medicine's efforts against this scourge. The history of Western civilization demonstrates that great strides are feasible, both in curbing illness and in curbing government. Although we may never finally abolish all states, there is little doubt that we can do still better at restraining their power, if only we can motivate people with the will to be free. Section 4. Private Security Production. Practical Applications. Chapter 9. National Defense and the Theory of Externalities, Public Goods, and Clubs by Walter Block. Levin wrote a wonderful little essay showing how philosophical errors impede freedom. His skim-milk fallacy is the mistake of assuming that the truth is the very opposite of what appears to be the case based on logic, careful consideration, and observation. The history of political economy is positively littered with examples of this sort. Perhaps the most famous is Hazlitt's hoodlum who heaves a brick through the window of a baker's shop. Ordinarily, this would seem to be economically harmful. Levin's philosophical fallacy concludes the very opposite. This, however, is but the tip of the iceberg. In this vein, Murray points out, tongue-in-cheek, that, quote, discrimination against white men is to be encouraged because it is the discrimination to end discrimination, end quote. Commenting on a U.S. standing army during the Cold War, Flynn trenchantly stated, quote, It makes no sense to militarize the economy in the name of fighting a militarized economy. End quote. The liar paradox, also called Epimenides paradox, is another case in point. This is the paradox that if this sentence is not true, is true, then it is not true. And if it is not true, then it is true. This example shows that certain formulations of words, though grammatically correct, are logically nonsensical. For example, the statement, I am lying, is true only if it is false, and false only if it is true. Epimenides, a 6th century BC Cretan prophet, first recorded such a paradox. Yet another example takes place in the context of sociobiology. Wilson maintains that the social sciences can be reduced to the physical ones, particularly that the distinctively human quest for unity of knowledge can be reduced to, ultimately, physics. Hassing's reply is worth quoting at length. Quote, the problem of self-reference is posed as soon as we ask the question, what caused E.O. Wilson to write his book? Suppose we answer that higgling molecules in E.O. Wilson's brain are the complete and sufficient causes of all the activity, physical and mental, involved in writing consilience. Now we know a lot about the properties of molecules. Truth-seeking is not one of them. 
If jiggling brain molecules are the whole cause of E. O. Wilson's production of his book, then there is nothing more than a chance connection between human knowledge and the array of letters in the pages of Concilians. Applying his universal reductionist principles of explanation to his own act of explaining, referring his explanation to himself, leads to a certain type of contradiction. What he says contradicts his credibility as a truthful speaker. He fails the test of self-reference. End quote. I myself have contributed in a small way to this literature of internal self-contradiction. In a debate with a Malthusian concerning the argument for population control, I stated, quote, even its advocates do not take it seriously. If one were seriously worried about overpopulation, the advocate of that view has one option, and that is suicide. The fact that my opponent in this debate is still here, talking, arguing, breathing, and living, is contradictory to his stated position. It is, further, hypocritical. It is evidence that he is not convinced by his own arguments. If he were, he has it within his power to lower the population by at least one. End quote. Perhaps the most profound utilization of this insight was offered by Hopper in his Argument from Argument. Hopper demonstrates that, while it is of course possible for one man to initiate violent aggression against another man and his property, he cannot, upon pain of contradiction, argue that he has the right to do any such thing. For, by its very nature, the essence of discourse is to concede to one's opponent the right to use his vocal cords, chest cavity, tongue, throat, etc., and to stand or sit on a certain piece of property. Thus, in arguing for the right to throttle people or steal their possessions, one cannot pass the test of self-reference. No matter what you call it, the skim-milk fallacy, the problem of self-reference, the difficulty of committing a pragmatic or logical contradiction, this problem is widespread in the literature of what passes for social scientific thought. But nowhere does it form more of the very basis of an entire philosophical outlook than in the case of national defense provided by governments. To put the thesis of this paper in a nutshell, to argue that a tax-collecting government can legitimately protect its citizens against aggression is to contradict oneself, since such an entity starts off the entire process by doing the very opposite of protecting those under its control. The government, by its very essence, does two things to its citizens incompatible with this claim. First, it forces the citizenry to enroll in its defence activities, and second, it prohibits others who wish to offer protection to clients in its geographical area from making such contracts with them, in preference to the one it itself offers to them under duress. If true protection from violence includes the government itself, and there is no reason it should not, then it is this entity which is the prime rights violator. 
The state here is indistinguishable from the mafia chieftain who tells his victim he will protect her from himself. What are the specifics? Externalities The first attempt to justify the levying of compulsory taxation in order to protect the citizen that we will consider is the argument from externalities. Many economists maintain that national defence is the sort of thing which, while it indubitably helps those who pay for it, they would scarcely consent to be billed were it otherwise. These benefits cannot be fully captured by them. Rather, a part of the good effect spills over onto those who have not paid for it. Each person thinks, if others pay for protection from external enemies, then I, instead of undertaking the defrayment of these costs, can be a free rider on their expenditures. But if all go through this exercise of logic, then each will wait for the others to finance this operation. They will all operate under the hope that the other guy will pay the freight, and they will be the passive beneficiaries. As a result, no one will recompense the private providers of this service. There will be no national defense, and relatively weak foreign armies will be able to overrun us. What is the solution to this conundrum? For mainstream economists, it is that the government force the citizenry, all of it, to pay taxes for national defence. In this way, the cycle of externalities can be broken. No one will ever need fear that others are riding on his coattails. They too will be forced to bear their fair share of the common defence. The problem here is one of self-reference. If the whole point of the exercise is to protect the people against violent incursion from others, how can this be attained if, at the very outset, the government does to them precisely what it is supposed to be protecting them from? That is, according to the logic of this externalities argument, the system is to defend them against aggression. How can this possibly be attained if the government starts off the process by attacking them? For example, by compelling them to pay for their protection, whether they wish to do so or not. Another difficulty is that this argument is too good. It proves too much, far too much. Were it true, it would apply not only to individuals, but also to groups of people to cities, states, even entire nations. Consider Mexico, the United States, and Canada in this regard. During the Cold War, if America arms to protect itself against the Russian imperialist bear, then, according to this argument, this benefit will of necessity spill over to its two neighbours, to the north and south of it. Therefore, the U.S. will not invest in a military establishment, similarly for Canada and Mexico. But the Soviets, too, will face the same dilemma. If they prepare to fight the imperialist, warmongering Americans, the Chinese, the Indians, 
the Pakistanis, the Afghanis, the Hungarians, etc., will all be the passive recipients of spillover benefits emanating from the Russian military might. They will thus wait with bated breath for the Soviets to do just that. But the minions of Stalin and Lenin will refuse to do so. Why should they undertake the necessary expenditures if their neighbours refuse to contribute their fair share? In point of fact, the Soviets and the Americans did build vast military establishments during the Cold War. Furthermore, the Mexicans and Canadians, to say nothing of the countries surrounding Russia, all saw fit to raise armies. So we know that there is something wrong with this argument from externalities, or at least that this argument somehow cannot be made to apply to groups of people, such as nations. But there is no reason given for the inability to generalize this argument. On the contrary, for its adherents, there are no limits to its applicability. Could it instead be the case that the military is really an external diseconomy, that instead of spilling benefits over to neighbours, those who arm on a massive scale are engaging in the creation of what the latter deem as harms? This seems to be the explanation for the US gun control laws. For, if it cannot be denied that countries invest in military hardware, this is also true of local citizens. And yet, instead of giving subsidies to those who purchase pistols, and to their organization, the National Rifle Association, the government penalizes such activities to the extent permitted by the Second Amendment to the Constitution. The point is... Individual citizens are attempting to arm themselves, and the left-wing intellectuals who buy into the national defense externality justification of the state, instead of applauding this refutation of their theory, support government interferences with it. This again is self-refuting. Advocates of the externality argument defend state coercion against innocent citizens on the grounds that the latter will not defend themselves due to spillover leakages. Yet, as it happens, when individuals do this, e.g. invest in private armaments, Instead of seeing this as the refutation of their theory that it is, they busy themselves weaving apologetics for government interferences with these occurrences. So which is it? Are guns, pistols, rifles, tanks, rocket launchers, jet fighters, etc. external economies or diseconomies? To ask this question is to expose the fallacies of the entire distinction, for it is not grounded in human action. Rather, it is based on the subjective speculations of the court historians who want to weave apologetics for the governmental initiation of violence against innocent taxpayers by use of the externalities argument, and who support statist gun controls on those attempting to protect themselves without help from politicians or bureaucrats, contrary to this argument. Rothbard's analysis is definitive. Basing his framework on the choices of actual individuals who engage in choice, his concept of demonstrated preference sheds light on this quandary. 
while most economists and men in the street under their malevolent tutelage may claim national defence as an external economy, there are those, pacifists, those who ban guns were they but logically consistent, who see it from the very opposite perspective, as external diseconomies. The explanation for this gulf is clear. One man's meat is another man's poison. For Rothbard, however, both are mistaken. This is because neither grounds its analysis in terms of human action, actual choices made in markets. The positive externalists may object that they cannot base their analytic framework on existing markets, since, at least according to their own perspective, there cannot be any market for national defence. In this, they are very much mistaken, as a matter of fact. A large and thriving gun, private detective, locksmith, cyclone fence, and insurance industry puts paid to the notion that positive externalities are so powerful, or even that they exist, that they can preclude people from defending themselves, organized through markets. But even were there no such industry in existence, the objection that advocates of positive externalities might launch at Rothbard comes to naught. For, in the absence of any demonstration that people who do not pay for a good or service value it nevertheless, at best this claim must be considered unproved. At worst, however, it can be considered bloody cheek in the British expression. For, armed with the idea, I can approach you with the following claim. You, gentle reader, have never hired me as an economic consultant. You have not taken advantage of this marvellous opportunity open to you. However, whether you know it or not, whether you realise it or not, whether you appreciate it or not, you actually benefit from my economic analysis. You are thus a selfish, chiselling free rider on these multifaceted benefits I have long provided for you gratis. But now it is time to stop you from exploiting me regarding these spillover gains you have long enjoyed for free. It is time for you to pay your fair share. Accordingly, I am hereby presenting you with this bill for $100,000, a bargain at the price. If you refuse to pay, I will then initiate violence against you. Not only is this bloody cheek, but you could reply in the same vein to me. All of us could bill each other for services rendered to any extent we wished. Once we have left the Rothbardian world of demonstrated preference, anyone can make whatever claim he wishes. We are at sea without a rudder. 3. Public Goods Another doctrine that has been used in an attempt to defend governmental provision of national defence is based on the concept of public goods. Two considerations give rise to an item being considered a public good or not, excludability and rivalrousness. Since either of these conditions admits only of a positive or negative, this system generates into a two-by-two -two matrix. If all people apart from the purchaser can be excluded from the enjoyment of a good, for example, a hamburger, and if the cost of serving an extra customer is positive, 
then we have a pure private good. In the case of goods that are excludable and rivalrous, there is no market failure, and thus no case for governmental intervention into the economy. In the case of goods which are rivalrous but are not excludable, such as access to a crowded street, it is difficult, impossible, or very expensive to exclude those who have not paid for the service. And there is rivalrousness, in the sense that each new entrant onto an already crowded street slows down or imposes costs upon all others who are attempting to move from place to place. The crowded city street, then, is a semi-public good. Semi because while it passes one criterion of the two-pronged test, it is rivalrous. It fails the other. It is not excludable. Nevertheless, it is an instance of market failure, according to this argument. Hence, government should provide for, create, and manage this facility. A similar conclusion applies to excludable but non-rivalrous goods. Only here the causal antecedents are reversed. In this case, goods and services are non-rivalrous, not non-excludable since non-payers can easily be prevented from obtaining the service, for example, jamming devices for TV broadcasts. But the absence of rivalrousness is a serious problem. Even though those who do not pay can be cheaply excluded from the benefits, efficiency considerations mandate that they not be prevented from consuming, since their doing so imposes no marginal cost on anyone else. In the category of non-excludable and non-rivalrous goods, we arrive at the pure public good, which offends against market efficiency on the grounds of both rivalrousness and excludability. Once a defensive army has been put into place, or a credible threat of nuclear retaliation in response to an attack, it costs nothing to add one more person under this protective umbrella. Therefore, not only is it the case that markets cannot provide national defense, but they should not, even if they could, since this would violate strictures against economic inefficiency. And it is the same with the lighthouse. Once it has been erected and its light turned on, it costs nothing to ward off from the dangerous shoals one additional boat. Nor can a ship be excluded from this benefit, since if the paying captain is to see the light beam, then so must those who did not contribute financially to this enterprise. Perhaps this schema is easier to perceive if we focus only on one type of service, auto-travel corridors, with a crowded highway being an example of an excludable and rivalrous good a crowded street being an example of a non-excludable but rivalrous good, an empty highway being an example of an excludable but non-rivalrous good, and an empty street being an example of a non-excludable and non-rivalrous good. We incorporate the fact that it is easy to exclude motorists from limited-access highways, for example with toll booths, but well-nigh impossible to do so for city streets. 
Similarly, when a thoroughfare of either type is crowded, there is rivalrousness. The marginal traveller imposes costs on all others, slowing them down, whether on street or highway. If empty, then not. The example of the empty city street offends the niceties of market failure on both grounds. It is difficult to exclude people, even from empty city streets, and there is no economic efficiency reason to do so in any case. So much for the argument. What are its flaws? There are many, and they are all serious. Consider first the example of the crowded highway. There is no denying that the marginal costs of an ex-ante hamburger are indeed greater than zero, in that there are alternatives foregone when one devotes resources in this direction, e.g. that cannot be invested in other opportunities. However, the same does not apply to ex-post or already-cooked burgers, for example, the ones waiting for purchase at McDonald's, between the time they are placed on the shelf and when someone purchases them. Indeed, not only are the costs of these foodstuffs no greater than zero, they are not even equal to zero. Instead, they have a negative value in that it costs something positive to dispose of them. This means that, rather than placing the hamburger in the category of a rivalrous and excludable good, it must be relegated to the category of an excludable but non-rivalrous good, along with all other goods which are non-rivalrous. But the excludability of this fast food item can also be called into question. Yes, if I eat it, then by definition you cannot avail yourself of it. But there is many a slip between cup and lip, and also between purchase and actual consumption. How many children, mainly in public schools, not in private ones, have been forced to give their lunch up to the playground bully? In all of these cases, the non-payers, e.g. the bullies, have not been excluded from enjoying the good in question. Thus, the burger moves into the category of a non-rivalrous and non-excludable public good. In like manner, we can collapse the category of non-excludable but rivalrous goods into the category of non-rivalrous and non-excludable public goods. All we need note is that there are more costs to traffic than crowding costs. The average truck carries many tons of weight, both in its frame and in its cargo bay. This negatively impacts the roadbed, even in non-peak load conditions, at great expense in terms of repairs and replacement, all of which further slows down all travellers. And yes, to be sure, at off-peak hours, no motorist retards the speed of any other on average, but suppose you get stuck behind a slowpoke at 3am on a one-lane road when it is otherwise empty. You are still victimised by the costs of a slower trip. Yes, non-subscribers can be excluded from pay TV, but only at a cost, which is a function of the arms race between offensive, e.g. hacker, and defensive, property owner, electronic technology. This cost can vary further depending upon the honesty of the populace, 
the ease of constructing counterfeit descramblers, and satellite dish technology. Conceivably, this can be extensive. Even if we for a moment accept the coherence of these distinctions, there are difficulties with the two categories of rivalrous but non-excludable goods and excludable but non-rivalrous goods. The assumption of most economists who buy into this model is that even though there are four separate categories, they do not at all account for an equal 25% of the entire GDP. Even for most commentators, the category of excludable and rivalrous private goods contains the overwhelming majority of goods and services. The category of non-rivalrous, non-excludable public goods encompasses little, if anything, more than national defense and lighthouses, while the categories of non-excludable but rivalrous and non-rivalrous but excludable goods, even together, are far smaller than the category of rivalrous and excludable private goods. However, it is possible to expand the coverage of non-rivalrous but excludable goods and non-excludable but rivalrous goods in the direction of the non-rivalrous, non-excludable public good. For example, it might be claimed that marginal cost equals zero in cases where the entire stock is not sold or rented, for example, when there are vacancies or excess supplies. It is, of course, true that surpluses tend to be diminished by the falling prices they themselves engender, but this process never works perfectly. We are never at full equilibrium. There are vacant seats in most movie theatres, ballparks, rock concerts, circuses, airline flights, and classrooms, and empty spaces in hotels, apartment houses, office buildings, shopping malls, and industrial parks. Given, then, that all other categories can be reduced to the one category of non-rivalrous, non-excludable public goods, we must confine our further critical comments to the latter. One basic difficulty with the entire public goods schema is that, whether or not there are costs at all, and whether or not they are positive or negative if they exist at all, is entirely a subjective matter. Costs, essentially, are opportunities foregone, specifically the next best alternative not chosen. Who but the chooser himself can ever be acquainted with any such thing? Certainly not the outside observer, mainstream economist, the one responsible for the public goods dogma in the first place. Another fundamental error concerns exclusion. It is a basic axiom of economics that private enterprise can be counted upon, ceteris paribus, to accomplish any task more easily, effectively, and cheaply than government. The market tends to weed out the creator of ed cells, for example. This tendency is greatly attenuated, to say the least, and virtually non-existent, to be more accurate, in the public sector. The public goods argument, illustrated by this four-part matrix, claims that excludability is an important criterion of whether a task should be relegated to the market or government. Yet the ability of the market to exclude non-payers, or to do anything else, is very different than that which prevails for the state. 
We arrive then at the circular reasoning that, since it would be very costly or impossible for the government to prevent non-customers from enjoying a good or service, therefore it is justified that this self-same entity, the state, provide it in the first place. To see the fallacy behind this argument, we could start off from the very opposite direction. That is, since it is easy for the private entrepreneur to exclude, this wipes out the categories of non-excludable goods in one fell swoop. Excludability, that is, is a function of markets in the first place. It is thus illegitimate to use this concept as a stick with which to beat the market, since the inability to exclude is a government, not a market failure. It is a mistake to count the lighthouse as a pure public good. The private lighthouse owner had a credible threat to hold over the head of the boat owner who refused to pay the fee. The next time he was in need of this service, it would be turned off if there were no other ships in the area. The non-payers could, of course, try to ride on the coattails of others in the industry, but this would unduly increase the risks of collision, either with other vessels or with rocks on the shore. Further, the non-payer would have to tailor his schedule to match those of other travellers, which might be more costly than the lighthouse fee. Alternatively, he could trim his sails to try to disguise himself as another boat, this too, however, would be expensive and even dangerous, and in the era of steamships, this became all but impossible. Also ignored is the phenomenon of internalizing externalities. The problem with the lighthouse is that there is a vast, unowned resource interfering with the analysis of markets. To it, the ocean has not yet been fully privatized. Were this to occur, the owner would likely provide lighthouses in much the same manner as other entrepreneurs, for example, grocers, bowling alley owners, commonly offer lighting services to their customers. In a similar vein, some economists claim that street lighting is a pure public good, since it is well-nigh impossible to restrict this service to those pedestrians who pay for it. The simple answer is to make it a package deal. Combine access to the sidewalk with the lighting and charge for both. Restaurant owners, after all, never charge separately for lighting. This is figured into the price of the meal. And as to restricting entry to sidewalks to customers, it may well be that when all such thoroughfares are privatized, access to them will be offered for free as a loss leader, in exactly the same manner that mall owners do not charge for use of their passageways. What of national defense? With these preliminary remarks, we are now ready to tackle this challenge. First of all, it is relatively easy to exclude non-payers from these sorts of benefits. All that need be done is for the Acme Private Defense Company to issue signs to its clients, a large plaque for their homes, stores, and factories, and a small lapel version for their persons. Any persons or property not sporting one of these... It would be fraudulent and punishable by law to counterfeit these posters. 
would be fair game as far as this protection agency is concerned. The corporation may even go so far as to tell the Cubans or the Russians or the Ayatollah, whoever is the bad guy du jour, that Jones has not paid for protection, and thus if he or his property is attacked, no resistance will be offered by this particular private police force. Of course, it would be illicit for Acme to demand of Jones that he pay them under the threat that they themselves will engage in an uninvited border crossing against him. Were Acme to do this, it would sink to the level of a governmental protection racket. Another sort of privatization would likely occur as the same sort of package deal that tied together street, highway, and sidewalk usage along with lighting. Under a system of pure laissez-faire capitalism, all property, no exceptions, would be privately owned. This includes, preeminently, roads, highways, and streets. Who then will protect people as they go about their daily routines of living at home, commuting back and forth to their jobs, with daily side trips to stores and movies, weekly ones to bowling alleys, golf courses and shopping malls, monthly ones to downtown, and annual vacations to faraway places. Why, the owners of these amenities, that is who. Remember, unlike at present, wherever a person goes, he will still be on private property. Each owner thereof will be highly motivated to ensure that no crimes occur on his premises, because if they do, there goes the present discounted value of his property. Moreover, unlike the public police and governmental soldiers, in addition to having a patriotic or esprit de corps motivation for guarding life and limb, they will also have a financial incentive to do so. It is no accident that the thoroughfares in Disneyland are far safer than those in New York's Central Park. Let one or a few rapes and murders occur in the former establishment, and profits will begin to plummet as customers stay away in droves. Allow a few more, and bankruptcy looms, and with it, the threat that the present owners will lose their property to entrepreneurs able to maintain a safety level consistent with a healthy bottom line. In very sharp contrast, when Central Park becomes a quasi-militarized zone where criminals run riot, no one in a position to do anything about it loses money. Fees for the upkeep, maintenance, and safeguarding of this park are derived from taxes, that is, compulsorily. No bankruptcy is possible. The only feasible remedy is a political one. But for that, the park users may have to wait as long as four years. Even then, they have no way to directly express their dissatisfaction with park safety. They must choose between two mayoral candidates who are responsible for far more than the protection of a few acres of land. The police, too, instead of confining their activities to guarding innocent people against criminals, actually themselves engage in the behavior associated with the latter. 
First and most basic is that the revenues raised to pay for their very salaries and purchase their uniforms, vehicles, weapons, etc., are based on compulsion. To wit, they engage in the very action against which they are sworn to protect their customers. It's hard to imagine a more blatantly self-contradictory system. But in addition to that outrage, they partake in a whole host of ancillary aggression. For example, they arrest people for buying or selling pharmaceuticals that have been arbitrarily declared illegal. They act likewise with regard to capitalist acts between consenting adults concerning sex, reading material, wages, working conditions, hours of labor, building codes, and the list goes on and on. While the police do indeed also spend time stopping murderers, rapists, and robbers, in none of the previously mentioned victimless crime cases are they, by any stretch of the imagination, protecting person or property. Instead, they are interfering still further with private, voluntary, contractual arrangements. Given that it would be feasible for private police to exclude non-payers or non-customers from the safety they afford, what of the other part of the argument, that concerning rivalrousness? Do cops have positive marginal costs? A moment's reflection will convince us that they do. For surely a bodyguard can more effectively protect one client than he can 100 or 1,000. If so, it costs more to ensure the safety of additional people. Consumers of protection, then, are rivalrous with regard to one another. When we move from the arena of internal police protection to the external region of armies and international relations, the story is much the same. National defense, too, cannot be categorized as a non-rivalrous, non-excludable public good. It is neither impossible to exclude non-payers, nor is it true that bringing in an additional person under the safety umbrella costs no additional resources. Take the latter claim first. If it were indeed the case that it was costless to protect additional people, once an army and, say, a credible nuclear threat of retaliation were in place, then Rhode Island alone could fight all our wars. Why bring in additional tax revenues from Texas or Alaska or Hawaii or Florida? They would be unnecessary. Second, in like manner, there would be no reason the entire continents of North and South America could not be safeguarded from external aggression, not by the US, which conceivably is powerful enough to accomplish this task, but by any smaller, weaker political jurisdiction the international equivalent of Rhode Island, Canada or Uruguay, for example. If these contentions are preposterous, which they are, then the same assessment must be placed on the argument that there are no extra costs for protecting additional people. Take another example. Suppose two armies invade the US at the same time, one from the Atlantic and the other from the Pacific. Surely our defense forces could do a far better job if they were able to focus their entire attention on only a one-front war. 
that they are charged with the obligation to defend both east and west coasts at the same time cannot help but put a crimp in their overall efforts. Now consider the former claim. Is it possible to exclude non-clients from protection? It is easy to see this is the case when it comes to conventional weaponry. If no one in Arkansas pays for protection from Muammar Gaddafi, then the private XYZ firm offering to keep this worthy at bay simply will not interfere with the latter's plan of conquering Arkansas. Instead, XYZ will limit itself to ensuring that this eastern assassin keeps his mitts off of customers in, say, New York and New Jersey, the areas from whence it draws its revenue. Suppose now that one-third of the inhabitants of Arkansas sign up with XYZ, and that they are spread throughout the state. Again, no problem. The International Protection Agency borrows a lead from its purely domestic counterpart. It gives out medallions only to its clients, and Gaddafi, as well as local villains, is given to understand that XYZ will look the other way if a non-customer is attacked. At first blush, it is more difficult to see how this might work with the nuclear umbrella. After all, if a threat of mass-assured destruction, if need be, will protect Arkansas from the Russians, those in the surrounding states of Missouri, Tennessee, Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas, and Oklahoma need not help finance the intercontinental ballistic missile system, which is intended to lob one into the men's room of the Kremlin. Those cheapskates can allow the Arkansans to do this all by themselves. The problem is, this argument proves far too much. For, if their ploy will work for the frontline states contiguous to Arkansas, it will function anywhere in the world. If one can in this way place the sword of Damocles over the head of every Russian in a position of authority and, of course, all others residing in that country, then there is in principle no limit to the demands that can be made of them. There is, then, no reason to confine the non-excludable area to that surrounding this one state. Theoretically, the entire world is the realm to which the area of non-excludability extends. If this is so, then there is no case for the defense of the various national governments in the nuclear club constituting public goods. Rather, what we have here is an argument for a world government encompassing all peoples of the earth. Voluntary Clubs in addition to the externalities and public goods arguments in defense of government, there is also the view that this institution is really part of the market in that it doesn't initiate violence against its members. Rather, the bottom line is that government is similar to a private club. Since the latter is not guilty of initiation of violence, then neither can this apply to the former. If this is so, then statist organized national defense is no more problematic than any other private initiative, for example, a hot dog stand. It is imperative, then, if the argument of government protection is to be critically analyzed, that these claims be exposed for the tissue of fallacies they are. 
Consider in this regard the following. Quote, One way to think of government is that it is like a club. Just as a tennis club exists to advance the interests of its members playing tennis, government exists to advance the common interests of its citizens. The club analogy is also useful in thinking about the question of secession. Just as the right to withdraw from a club, if it no longer serves one's interests, seems reasonable, so too, under certain circumstances, is the right to secede. The withdrawal of an individual from a club can adversely affect other club members. Suppose, for example, that a club's facilities were built under the assumption that 1,000 members would cover amortization of construction and maintenance costs. If membership falls below 1,000, the remaining members must pay higher annual fees than originally planned. With this in mind, the founding members of a club may agree to impose a penalty on those who withdraw, or require that they put up a bond to be forfeited upon withdrawal, unless they can find a new member to take their place. End quote. Of course, if a club can determine the penalty to be imposed upon those who secede, it can also, like a government, prohibit this from occurring in the first place. Another author with similar views to Charles Blankhart, quote, The state can be viewed as an organization similar to a club. Clubs are formed by individuals who want to pursue a common goal. Similarly, a state can be defined as a club formed by citizens and designed to serve goals that its members have in common, like the provision of public goods, such as law and order, national defense, streets and highways, etc. End quote. He also delivers himself of this option. Quote, a state is a peculiar kind of club in that its dimensions are generally defined geographically. End quote. The idea that a government is analogous to a private voluntary club, or better yet is nothing more or less than a private voluntary club, is widely associated with, or credited to, James Buchanan. We shall, however, pursue Randall Holcomb's version of this doctrine. It is very confused and contradictory, but its twists and turns, its contradictions and obfuscations, can serve as a good foil. Although this author specifically states, quote, few people would be willing to argue that the government is nothing more than a large club, end quote, and indeed this is wildly mistaken, this is precisely his view, I shall argue. Only, instead of maintaining merely that the state is, at bottom, a voluntary organization, Holcomb believes, in addition, that voluntary clubs are really coercive. Exhibit A in this contention of mine is his exchange model of government. Now, for most people, exchange implies voluntary interaction. A pie delivery man gives one of his pies to the milk delivery man, and the latter reciprocates in kind, as the very famous Norman Rockwell drawing illustrates. But Holcomb is having none of this. Instead, he maintains in an exchange scenario from hell. Quote, one possibility would be for the strong person to enslave the weak one and force the weak person to work for her. 
The strong person is the residual claimant in this case, but the weak person has little incentive to be productive. The weak person has no incentive to produce things that he knows will be stolen from him later. Another possibility from the starting point of anarchy is for the strong person to agree to take only a predetermined share of the weak person's output. For example, if both people agreed that the weak person would give the strong one-third of his output, both could be better off. The weak person now has an incentive to produce, knowing that he will be able to keep two-thirds of his output, and the strong person gets one-third of the weak person's output. Under anarchy, the weak person would be unlikely to produce anything that could be taken by the strong, reducing the output that could be produced by both persons. The two-person society is more productive, and both people are better off under the agreement that the weak person shares a specified percentage of his production with the strong. End quote. The difficulty here is not that Holcomb ascribes coercion to statist institutions. On the contrary, this is entirely correct. The problem is the perversity of the language used to describe such a relationship, in terms of exchange and agreement. If this be agreement, it is the agreement of a hold-up victim to be robbed, rather than shot and then robbed. It is the agreement of a woman to be raped rather than raped and killed when she really agrees to neither. In short, it is no agreement at all. Such confusing language seems almost purposefully obfuscatory. Holcomb goes on to describe government as, quote, the exchange of protection for tribute, end quote, and to claim that this, quote, benefits both citizens and their government. End quote. The former is merely the idiosyncratic language we have come to expect from this author. When one side protects the other from depredations emanating from itself, this is only protection in the mafia or protection racket sense of the term. It is, to be crystal clear, not protection at all, but rather invasion or theft. And to say that both sides of this transaction benefit is to add insult to injury. If this were really a mutually beneficial trade, as is the case of the barter of the pie and the bottle of milk, both sides would enter into it voluntarily. But here, even as Holcomb admits, one side enters into the agreement under duress, some contract. For an author who sees a strong parallel between government and clubs, Holcomb is guilty of a bit of inconsistency. For example, he states, quote, If clubs are fundamentally voluntary organizations, then one can have little reason for wanting to interfere with the club's activities. People who do not like the club's activities do not have to join. If governments are fundamentally coercive organizations that force people to abide by government's rules, then everyone in the group has an interest in the government's activities. End quote. But this is more than passingly curious. He just finished admitting that governments are indeed coercive in that they force people into contracts with them. Why the delicacy here? 
Second, parallel construction would have forced him to conclude the quote above, not as he did, but rather by saying, then everyone in the group would have much reason for wanting to interfere in the government's activities. Why shrink back from the implications of one's own premises? Then, too, Holcomb resists the equation of taxation and theft. He states, quote, Even if one regards taxation as theft, one would hardly say that a thief becomes a government as the result of his thievery. End quote. Very much to the contrary, starting from Holcomb's premises, one would be compelled by the laws of logic to assert this very thing, apart from the fact that a government is defined as a thief with legitimacy. But government, as I say, is not the main problem for Holcomb. At least this author admits, in his own befuddled language, that the government is indeed guilty of threatening violence against the citizens, unless they agree to pay tribute, even though he fails to fully carry through on this insight. In contrast, the real difficulty is that Holcomb sees coercion in voluntary organizations such as clubs. Take what some would consider as the rather inoffensive Bridge Club, which provides that its members host the meeting once per month. Quote, the Bridge Club taxes its members by requiring that they pay for refreshments every fourth week. There is also a certain amount of work involved in hosting the group, such as setting up a place to play, preparing refreshments, and cleaning up afterwards. This forced labor is similar in concept to a military draft. End quote. This author would not like to be interpreted as seriously maintaining that the bridge club is coercive. This, it might be thought, is too contrary to common sense, even for him. Instead, he might like to be interpreted as merely using this example as an entering wedge to show that there is no real difference in principle between coercive and voluntary arrangements. He specifically states that there is a, quote, continuum from clubs to governments, end quote, but he cannot be allowed to escape this easily. For Holcomb maintains, in effect, that the bridge club is partially coercive, but this is a monstrous and presumably purposeful use of misleading language, at least on the part of the native speaker of English. If the bridge club, forsooth, is a coercive institution, even partially so, then there is no hope at all for clarity in this field. His heavy artillery in this regard is the distinction or rather lack of distinction, between the Neighbourhood Association swimming pool, which arises out of covenant or contract, and the Municipal pool, which is of course based on taxation. He is fooled by the superficial similarities of these two cases into thinking that there is no relevant difference between them. He states, quote, Surely the difference between them cannot be related to coercion. Both the neighborhood pool organization and the municipal government have the ability to force its residents to contribute to its coffers. In both cases, the individual cannot escape the organization without moving away, but in both cases, it is possible to move away. End quote. The obvious difference between the two cases, 
clearly apparent to anyone who understands even a smattering of political philosophy is that in the former case, the swimming facility is privately owned, while in the latter case, it is not. According to Holcomb, quote, the subdivision was once a farm and was bought by a developer who divided the farm into individual lots and built houses on the lots. In the center of the subdivision, the developer built a neighborhood pool, end quote. To avail oneself of access to this facility without paying is thus actually to commit theft of services from the private condominium association which now owns the pool. In very sharp contrast indeed, the municipal pool is under the auspices of the town council. There are no private property rights involved. Very much to the contrary, there is a local government with the power to compel citizens who have signed no contract with it whatsoever. This elementary distinction, so basic to public policy analysis, seems to have entirely escaped the notice of this author. According to Schumpeter, quote, the theory which construes taxes on the analogy of club dues or the purchase of the services of, say, a doctor, only proves how far removed this part of the social sciences is from scientific habits of mind. End quote. This reads as if Schumpeter had Holcomb specifically in mind. That the two establishments have some superficial resemblances to each other cannot be denied. But according to Holcomb's own theory of the creation of the state, individuals came first. Because they suffered under the Hobbesian state of nature, they agreed to exchange this state of affairs for one of civilization and government. But they did not agree to any such thing. As Spooner shows, there is simply no evidence for this contention. No one not under duress signed any contract inaugurating the government, and no one ever paid any tax on a voluntary basis. This being the case, the status of the government's swimming pool, despite outward appearances, is actually entirely different from the purely private one. The government did indeed exchange tribute for regularity in theft, but Holcomb is in grave error when he likens this to the private property relationships underlying the condominium swimming pool. Even after careful attention and several re-readings, it is unclear to me whether Holcomb sees small units of government, for example towns and villages, as voluntary, or private condominium developments as coercive, or both. It is unclear because he prevaricates on these two views. The correct position, I maintain, is that both of these are wrong. That is, government, no matter how local a level, is always coercive. This is the essence of the institution. This holds unless there is unanimous agreement at the outset. But if this is so, then we are no longer discussing statism. Rather, we have edged into the private realm. In sharp contrast, it cannot be doubted that private, voluntary communal arrangements must of necessity be non-coercive. If somehow they are or become coercive, then they are properly to be interpreted as an aspect of the government, not the voluntary sector. Private criminal gangs, 
Individual robbers and rapists, for instance, are necessarily governmental, albeit unofficial. Conclusion We have considered several arguments on behalf of governmentally organized national defense, externalities, public goods, and club theory. We have found all of them wanting. We conclude, therefore, that the case for these institutional arrangements is unproved. Chapter 10 Government and the Private Production of Defense by Hans Hermann Hopper Quote, It is the right of the people to alter or abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form, as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. End quote. The Declaration of Independence. 1. Among the most popular and consequential beliefs of our age is the belief in collective security. Nothing less significant than the legitimacy of the modern state rests on this belief. I will demonstrate that the idea of collective security is a myth that provides no justification for the modern state, and that all security is and must be private. First, I will present a two-step reconstruction of the myth of collective security, and at each step I will raise a few theoretical concerns. The myth of collective security can also be called the Hobbesian myth. Thomas Hobbes, and countless political philosophers and economists after him, argued that, in the state of nature, men would be constantly at each other's throats. Homo homini lupus est. Put in modern jargon, in the state of nature, a permanent underproduction of security would prevail. Each individual, left to his own devices and provisions, would spend too little on his own defense, resulting in permanent interpersonal warfare. The solution to this presumably intolerable situation, according to Hobbes and his followers, is the establishment of a state. In order to institute peaceful cooperation among themselves, two individuals, A and B, require a third independent party, S, as ultimate judge and peacemaker. However, this third party, S, is not just another individual, and the good provided by S, that of security, is not just another private good. Rather, S is a sovereign, and has as such two unique powers. On the one hand, S can insist that his subjects, A and B, not seek protection from anyone but him. That is, S is a compulsory territorial monopolist of protection. On the other hand, S can determine unilaterally how much A and B must spend on their own security. That is, S has the power to impose taxes in order to provide security collectively. 
There is little use in quarrelling over whether or not man is as bad and wolf-like as Hobbes supposes, except to note that Hobbes' thesis obviously cannot mean that man is driven only and exclusively by aggressive instincts. If this were the case, mankind would have died out long ago. The fact that he did not demonstrates that man also possesses reason and is capable of constraining his natural impulses. The quarrel is only in the Hobbesian solution. Given man's nature as a rational animal, is the proposed solution to the problem of insecurity an improvement? Can the institution of a state reduce aggressive behavior and promote peaceful cooperation, and thus provide for better private security and protection? The difficulties with Hobbes' argument are obvious. For one, regardless of how bad men are, S, whether king, dictator, or elected president, is still one of them. Man's nature is not transformed upon becoming S. Yet how can there be better protection for A and B if S must tax them in order to provide it? Is there not a contradiction within the very construction of S as an expropriating property protector? In fact, is this not exactly what is also, and more appropriately, referred to as a protection racket? To be sure, S will make peace between A and B, but only so that he himself can rob both of them more profitably. Surely S is better protected, but the more he is protected, the less A and B are protected from attacks by S. Collective security, it would seem, is not better than private security. Rather, it is the private security of the state, S, achieved through the expropriation, i.e. the economic disarmament of its subjects. Further, statists, from Thomas Hobbes to James Buchanan, have argued that a protective state, S, would come about as the result of some sort of constitutional contract. Yet who in his right mind would agree to a contract that allowed one's protector to determine unilaterally and irrevocably the sum that the protected must pay for his protection? The fact is no one ever has. Let me interrupt my discussion and return to the reconstruction of the Hobbesian myth. Once it is assumed that, in order to institute peaceful cooperation between A and B, it is necessary to have a state S, a twofold conclusion follows. If more than one state exists, S1, S2, S3, then, just as there can presumably be no peace among A and B without S, so there can be no peace between states S1, S2, and S3 as long as they remain in a state of nature, i.e. a state of anarchy, with regard to each other. Consequently, in order to achieve universal peace, Political centralization, unification, and ultimately the establishment of a single world government are necessary. It is useful to indicate what can be taken as non-controversial. 
To begin with, the argument is correct as far as it goes. If the premise is correct, then the consequence spelled out does follow. The empirical assumptions involved in the Hobbesian account appear at first glance to be borne out by the facts as well. It is true that states are constantly at war with each other, and a historical tendency toward political centralization and global rule does indeed appear to be occurring. Quarrels arise only with the explanation of this fact and tendency, and the classification of a single unified world state as an improvement in the provision of private security and protection. There appears to be an empirical anomaly for which the Hobbesian argument cannot account. The reason for the warring among different states, S1, S2, and S3, according to Hobbes, is that they are in a state of anarchy vis-à-vis each other. However, before the arrival of a single world state, not only are S1, S2, and S3 in a state of anarchy relative to each other, but in fact every subject of one state is in a state of anarchy vis-à-vis every subject of any other state. Accordingly, just as much war and aggression should exist between the private citizens of various states as between different states. Empirically, however, this is not so. The private dealings between foreigners appear to be significantly less warlike than the dealings between different governments. Nor does this seem to be surprising. After all, state agent S in contrast to every one of his subjects, can rely on domestic taxation in the conduct of his foreign affairs. Given his natural human aggressiveness, is it not obvious that S will be more brazen and aggressive in his conduct toward foreigners if he can externalize the cost of such behavior onto others? Surely I would be willing to take greater risks and engage in more provocation and aggression if I could make others pay for it. And surely there would be a tendency of one state, one protection racket, to want to expand its territorial protection monopoly at the expense of other states, and thus bring about world government as the ultimate result of interstate competition. But how is this an improvement in the provision of private security and protection? The opposite seems to be the case. The world state is the winner of all wars and the last surviving protection racket. Doesn't this make it particularly dangerous? Will not the physical power of any single world government be overwhelming as compared to that of any one of its individual subjects? Two. Let me pause in my abstract theoretical considerations to take a brief look at the empirical evidence bearing on the issue at hand. As noted at the outset, the myth of collective security is as widespread as it is consequential. I am not aware of any survey on this matter, but I would venture to predict that the Hobbesian myth is accepted more or less unquestioningly by well over 90% of the adult population. However, to believe something does not make it true. Rather, if what one believes is false, one's actions will lead to failure. What about the evidence? 
Does it support Hobbes and his followers, or does it confirm the opposite anarchist fears and contentions? The U.S. was explicitly founded as a protective state, a la Hobbes. Let me quote to this effect from Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. Quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. End quote. Here we have it. The U.S. government was instituted to fulfill one and only one task, the protection of life and property. Thus, it should provide the perfect example for judging the validity of the Hobbesian claim as to the status of states as protectors. After more than two centuries of protective statism, what is the status of our protection and peaceful human cooperation? Was the American experiment in protective statism a success? According to the pronouncements of our state rulers and their intellectual bodyguards, of whom there are more than ever before, we are better protected and more secure than ever. We are supposedly protected from global warming and cooling, from the extinction of animals and plants, from the abuses of husbands and wives, parents and employers from poverty, disease, disaster, ignorance, prejudice, racism, sexism, homophobia, and countless other public enemies and dangers. In fact, however, matters are strikingly different. In order to provide us with all this protection, the state managers expropriate more than 40% of the incomes of private producers year in and year out. Government debt and liabilities have increased uninterruptedly, thus increasing the need for future expropriations. Owing to the substitution of government paper money for gold, financial insecurity has increased sharply, and we are continually robbed through currency depreciation. Every detail of private life, property, trade, and contract is regulated by ever higher mountains of laws, legislation, thereby creating permanent legal uncertainty and moral hazard. In particular, we have been gradually stripped of the right to exclusion implied in the very concept of property. As sellers we cannot sell to, and as buyers we cannot buy from whomever we wish. And as members of associations, we are not permitted to enter into whatever restrictive covenants we believe to be mutually beneficial. As Americans, we must accept immigrants we do not want as our neighbors. As teachers, we cannot get rid of ill-behaved students. As employers, we are stuck with incompetent or destructive employees. As landlords, we are forced to cope with bad tenants. As bankers and insurers, we are not allowed to avoid bad risks. As restaurant or bar owners, we must accommodate unwelcome customers. 
and as members of private associations, we are compelled to accept individuals and actions in violation of our own rules and restrictions. In short, the more the state has increased its expenditures on social security and public safety, the more our private property rights have been eroded, the more our property has been expropriated, confiscated, destroyed or depreciated, and the more we have been deprived of the very foundation of all protection, economic independence, financial strength and personal wealth. The path of every president and practically every member of Congress is littered with hundreds of thousands of nameless victims of personal economic ruin, financial bankruptcy, emergency, impoverishment, despair, hardship and frustration. The picture appears even bleaker when we consider foreign affairs. Never during its entire history has the continental U.S. been territorially attacked by any foreign army. Pearl Harbor was the result of a preceding U.S. provocation, and the September 11th attacks were carried out by a terrorist organization. Yet the U.S. has the distinction of having had a government that declared war against large parts of its own population, and engaged in the wanton murder of hundreds of thousands of its own citizens. Moreover, while the relations between American citizens and foreigners do not appear to be unusually contentious, almost from its very beginning, the U.S. government relentlessly pursued aggressive expansionism. Beginning with the Spanish-American War, culminating in World War I and World War II, and continuing to the present, the U.S. government has become entangled in hundreds of foreign conflicts and risen to the rank of the world's dominant imperialist power. Thus, nearly every president since the turn of the 20th century has also been responsible for the murder, killing, or starvation of countless innocent foreigners all over the world. In short, while we have become more helpless, impoverished, threatened, and insecure, the U.S. government has become ever more brazen and aggressive. In the name of national security, it defends us, equipped with enormous stockpiles of weapons of aggression and mass destruction, by bullying ever new Hitlers, big or small, and all suspected Hitlerite sympathizers anywhere and everywhere outside of the territory of the US. The empirical evidence thus seems clear. The belief in a protective state appears to be a patent error, and the American experiment in protective statism a complete failure. The US government does not protect us. To the contrary, there exists no greater threat to our life, property and prosperity than the US government, and the US president in particular is the world's single most threatening and armed danger, capable of ruining everyone who opposes him and destroying the entire globe. 3. Statists react much like socialists when faced with the dismal economic performance of the Soviet Union and its satellites. They do not necessarily deny the disappointing facts, 
but they try to argue them away by claiming that these facts are the result of a systematic discrepancy, deviancy, between real and ideal or true statism, i.e. socialism. To this day, socialists claim that true socialism has not been refuted by the empirical evidence, and that everything would have turned out well, and unparalleled prosperity would have resulted if only Trotsky's, or Bukharin's, or better still their very own brand of socialism, rather than Stalin's, had been implemented. Similarly, statists interpret all seemingly contradictory evidence as only accidental. If only some other president had come to power at this or that turn in history, or if only this or that constitutional change or amendment had been adopted, everything would have turned out beautifully, and unparalleled security and peace would have resulted. Indeed, this may still happen in the future if their own policies are employed. We have learned from Ludwig von Mises how to respond to the socialists' evasion, immunization, strategy. As long as the defining characteristic, the essence of socialism, i.e. the absence of the private ownership of the factors of production, remains in place, no reform will be of any help. The idea of a socialist economy is a contradiction in terms, and the claim that socialism represents a higher, more efficient mode of social production is absurd. In order to reach one's own ends efficiently and without waste within the framework of an exchange economy based on the division of labor, it is necessary that one engage in monetary calculation, cost accounting. Everywhere outside the system of a primitive, self-sufficient, single-household economy, monetary calculation is the sole tool of rational and efficient action. Only by comparing inputs and outputs arithmetically in terms of a common medium of exchange, money, can a person determine whether his actions are successful or not. In distinct contrast, socialism means to have no economy – no economizing at all, because under these conditions, monetary calculation and cost accounting are impossible by definition. If no private property in the factors of production exists, then no prices for any production factor exist. Hence it is impossible to determine whether or not they are employed economically. Accordingly, socialism is not a higher mode of production, but rather economic chaos and regression to primitivism. How to respond to the statists' evasion strategy has been explained by Murray N. Rothbard. But Rothbard's lesson, while equally simple and clear and of even more momentous implications, has remained to this day far less known and appreciated. So long as the defining characteristic, the essence of a state, remains in place, he explained, no reform, whether of personnel or constitution, will be to any avail. Given the principle of government, judicial monopoly and the power to tax, any notion of limiting its power and safeguarding individual life and property is illusory. 
Under monopolistic auspices, the price of justice and protection must rise, and its quality must fall. A tax-funded protection agency is a contradiction in terms, and will lead to ever more taxes and less protection. Even if a government limited its activities exclusively to the protection of pre-existing property rights, as every protective state is supposed to do, the further question of how much security to provide would arise. Motivated, like everyone else, by self-interest and the disutility of labour, but with the unique power to tax, a government's answer will invariably be the same to maximize expenditures on protection, and almost all of a nation's wealth can conceivably be consumed by the cost of protection, and at the same time to minimize the production of protection. Furthermore, a judicial monopoly must lead to a deterioration in the quality of justice and protection. If one can only appeal to government for justice and protection, justice and protection will be perverted in favour of government, constitutions and supreme courts notwithstanding. After all, constitutions and supreme courts are state constitutions and courts, and whatever limitations to government action they might contain is determined by agents of the very institution under consideration. Accordingly, the definition of property and protection will continually be altered, and the range of jurisdiction expanded to the government's advantage. Hence, Rothbard pointed out, it follows that just as socialism cannot be reformed and must be abolished in order to achieve prosperity, so the institution of a state cannot be reformed but must be abolished in order to achieve justice and protection. Quote, defense in the free society, including such defense services to person and property as protection and judicial findings, Rothbard concluded, would therefore have to be supplied by people or firms who a. gained their revenue voluntarily rather than by coercion, and b. did not, as the state does, arrogate to themselves a compulsory monopoly of police or judicial protection. Defence firms would have to be as freely competitive and non-coercive against non-invaders as are all other suppliers of goods and services on the free market. Defence services, like all other services, would be marketable, and marketable only. End quote. That is, every private property owner would be able to partake of the advantages of the division of labour and seek better protection of his property than that afforded through self-defence by cooperation with other owners and their property. Anyone could buy from, sell to, or otherwise contract with anyone else concerning protective and judicial services, and one could at any time unilaterally discontinue any such cooperation with others and fall back on self-reliant defence or change one's protective affiliations. 4. Having reconstructed the myth of collective security, the myth of the state, 
and criticised it on theoretical and empirical grounds, I now must take on the task of constructing the positive case for private security and protection. In order to dispel the myth of collective security, it is not just sufficient to grasp the error involved in the idea of a protective state. It is just as important, if not more so, to gain a clear understanding of how the non-statist security alternative would effectively work. Rothbard, building on the path-breaking analysis of the French-Belgian economist Gustave de Molinari, has given us a sketch of the workings of a free market system of protection and defence. As well, we are in debt to Morris and Linda Tannehill for their brilliant insights and analyses in this regard. Following their lead, I will proceed with my analysis and provide a more comprehensive view of the alternative, non-statist system of security production and its ability to handle attacks, not just by individuals or gangs, but in particular also by states. Widespread agreement exists among liberal libertarians, such as Molinari, Rothbard, and the Tannehills, as well as most other commentators on the matter, that defence is a form of insurance, and defence expenditures represent a sort of insurance premium, price. Accordingly, as Rothbard and the Tannehills in particular would emphasise, within the framework of a complex modern economy based on worldwide division of labour, the most likely candidates to offer protection and defence services are insurance agencies. The better the protection of insured property, the lower are the damage claims and hence the insurer's costs. Thus, to provide efficient protection appears to be in every insurer's own financial interest. Indeed, although restricted and hampered by the state, even now insurance agencies provide wide-ranging services of protection and indemnification compensation to injured private parties. Insurance companies fulfill a second essential requirement – Obviously, anyone offering protection services must appear able to deliver on his promises in order to find clients. That is, he must possess the economic means, the manpower as well as the physical resources, necessary to accomplish the task of dealing with the dangers, actual or imagined, of the real world. On this count, insurance agencies appear to be the perfect candidates, too. They operate on a nationwide and even an international scale, and they own large property holdings, dispersed over wide territories and beyond single state boundaries. Accordingly, they have a manifest self-interest in effective protection, and are big and economically powerful. Furthermore, all insurance companies are connected through a network of contractual agreements of mutual assistance and arbitration, as well as a system of international reinsurance agencies, representing a combined economic power which dwarfs that of most existing governments. Let me further analyse and systematically clarify this suggestion that protection and defence are insurance and can be provided by insurance agencies. 
To reach this goal, two issues must be addressed. First off, it is not possible to insure oneself against every risk of life. I cannot insure myself against committing suicide, for instance, or against burning down my own house, becoming unemployed, not feeling like getting out of bed in the morning, or not suffering entrepreneurial losses, because in each case I have full or partial control over the likelihood of the respective outcome. Risks such as these must be assumed individually. No one but I can possibly deal with them. Hence, the first question must be, what makes protection and defense an insurable rather than an uninsurable risk? After all, as we have just seen, this is not self-evident. In fact, does not everyone have a considerable control over the likelihood of an attack on and invasion of his person and property? Do I not deliberately bring about an attack by assaulting or provoking someone else, for instance? And is not protection then an uninsurable risk, like suicide or unemployment, for which each person must assume sole responsibility? The answer is a qualified yes and no. Yes, insofar as no one can possibly offer unconditional protection, i.e. insurance against any invasion whatsoever. That is, unconditional protection can only be provided, if at all, by each individual on his own and for himself. But the answer is no, insofar as conditional protection is concerned. Only attacks and invasions that are provoked by the victim cannot be insured. Unprovoked and thus accidental attacks can be insured against, however. That is, protection becomes an insurable good only if, and insofar as, an insurance agent contractually restricts the actions of the insured so as to exclude every possible provocation on their part. Various insurance companies may differ with respect to the specific definition of provocation, but there can be no difference between insurers with regard to the principle that everyone must systematically exclude, prohibit, all provocative and aggressive action among its own clients. As elementary as this first insight into the essentially defensive, non-aggressive and non-provocative, nature of protection insurance may seem, it is of fundamental importance. For one, it implies that any known aggressor and provocateur would be unable to find an insurer, and hence would be economically isolated, weak and vulnerable. On the other hand, it implies that anyone wanting more protection than that afforded by self-reliant self-defense could do so only if and insofar as he submitted himself to specified norms of non-aggressive, civilized conduct. Further, the greater the number of insured people, and in a modern exchange economy most people want more than just self-defense for their protection, the greater would be the economic pressure on the remaining uninsured to adopt the same or similar standards of non-aggressive social conduct. 
Moreover, as a result of competition between insurers for voluntary paying clients, a tendency toward falling prices per insured property values would come about. At the same time, a system of competing insurers would have a twofold impact on the development of law and thus contribute further to reduce conflict. On the one hand, the system would allow for systematically increased variability and flexibility of law. Rather than imposing a uniform set of standards onto everyone, as under statist conditions, insurance agencies could and would compete against each other, not just via price, but in particular also through product differentiation and development. Insurers could and would differ and distinguish themselves with respect to the behavioral code imposed on and expected of their clients, with respect to rules of evidence and procedure, and or with respect to the sort of assignment of awards and punishments. There could and would exist side by side, for instance, Catholic insurers applying canon law, Jewish insurers applying Mosaic law, Muslims applying Islamic law, and non-believers applying secular law of one variant or another, all of them sustained by and vying for a voluntarily paying clientele. Consumers could and would choose, and sometimes change, the law applied to them and their property. That is, no one would be forced to live under foreign law, and hence a prominent source of conflict would be eliminated. On the other hand, a system of insurers offering competing law codes would promote a tendency toward the unification of law. The domestic, Catholic, Jewish, Roman, Germanic, etc., Law would apply and be binding only on the persons and properties of the insured, the insurer, and all others insured by the same insurer under the same law. Canon law, for instance, would apply only to professed Catholics, and would deal solely with intra-Catholic conflict and conflict resolution. Yet it would also be possible for a Catholic to interact, come into conflict with, and wish to be protected from the subscribers of other law codes, for example, a Muslim. From this, no difficulty would arise, so long as Catholic and Islamic law reached the same or similar conclusion regarding the case and contenders at hand. But if competing law codes arrived at distinctly different conclusions, as they would in at least some cases by virtue of the fact that they represent different law codes, a problem would arise. The insured would want to be protected against the contingency of intergroup conflict too, but domestic, intra-group law would be of no avail in this regard. In fact, at a minimum, two distinct domestic law codes would be involved, and they would come to different conclusions. In such a situation, it could not be expected that one insurer and the subscribers of his law code, say the Catholics, would simply subordinate their judgment to that of another insurer and his law, say that of the Muslims, or vice versa. Rather, each insurer, Catholic and Muslim alike, 
would have to contribute to the development of intergroup law, i.e. law applicable in cases of disagreement among competing insurers and law codes. And because the intergroup law provisions that an insurer offered to its clients could appear credible to them, and hence a good, only if and insofar as the same provisions would be accepted by other insurers, and the more of them the better, competition would provoke the development and refinement of a body of law that incorporated the widest, intergroup, cross-cultural, etc., legal, moral consensus and agreement, and thus represented the greatest common denominator among various competing legal codes. More specifically, because competing insurers and law codes could and would disagree regarding the merit of at least some of the cases brought jointly before them, Every insurer would be compelled to submit itself and its clients in these cases from the outset to arbitration by an independent third party. This third party would not just be independent of the two disagreeing parties, however. It would at the same time be the unanimous choice of both parties. And, as objects of unanimous choice, arbitrators then would represent, or even personify, consensus and agreeability. They would be agreed upon because of their commonly perceived ability of finding and formulating mutually agreeable, i.e. fair, solutions in cases of intergroup disagreement. Moreover, if an arbitrator failed in this task and arrived at conclusions that were perceived as unfair or biased by either one of the insurers and or their clients, this person would not likely be chosen again as an arbitrator in the future. Consequently, protection and security contracts would come into existence as the first fundamental result of competition between insurers for a voluntarily paying clientele. Insurers, unlike states, would offer their clients contracts with well-specified property and product descriptions and clearly defined and delineated duties and obligations. Likewise, the relationship between insurers and arbitrators would be defined and governed by contract. Each party to a contract, for the duration or until the fulfillment of the contract, would be bound by its terms and conditions, and every change in the terms or conditions of a contract would require the unanimous consent of all parties concerned. That is, under competition... Unlike under statist conditions, no legislation would or could exist. No insurers could get away, as the state can, with promising its clients protection without letting them know how or at what price, and insisting that it could, if it so desired, unilaterally change the terms and conditions of the protector-client relationship. Insurance clients would demand something significantly better, and insurers would comply and supply contracts and constant law instead of promises and shifting and changing legislation. 
Furthermore, as a result of the continual cooperation of various insurers and arbitrators, a tendency toward the unification of property and contract law, and the harmonization of the rules of procedure, evidence, and conflict resolution, including such questions as liability, tort, compensation, and punishment, would be set in motion. On account of buying protection insurance, everyone would become tied into a global competitive enterprise of striving to reduce conflict and enhance security. Moreover, every single conflict and damage claim, regardless of where and by or against whom, would fall into the jurisdiction of one or more specific insurance agencies, and would be handled either by an individual insurer's domestic law, or by the international law provisions and procedures agreed upon in advance by a group of insurers, thus assuring ex-ante complete and perfect legal stability and certainty. 5. Now, a second question must be addressed. Even if the status of defensive protection as an insurable good is granted, distinctly different forms of insurance exist. Let us consider just two characteristic examples. Insurance against natural disasters, such as earthquakes, floods, and hurricanes, and insurance against industrial accidents or disasters, such as malfunctions, explosions, and defective products. The former can serve as an example of group or mutual insurance. Some territories are more prone to natural disasters than others. Accordingly, the demand for and price of insurance will be higher in some areas than others. However, every location within certain territorial borders is regarded by the insurer as homogenous with respect to the risk concerned. The insurer presumably knows the frequency and extent of the event in question for a region as a whole, but he knows nothing about the particular risk of any specific location within the territory. In this case, every insured person will pay the same premium per insured value, and the premiums collected in one time period will presumably be sufficient to cover all damage claims during the same time period, otherwise the insurance industry will incur losses. Thus, the particular individual risks are pooled and insured mutually. In contrast, industrial insurance can serve as an example of individual insurance. Unlike natural disasters, the insured risk is the outcome of human action, i.e. of production efforts. Every production process is under the control of an individual producer. No producer intends to fail or experience a disaster, and as we have seen, only accidental, non-intended disasters are insurable. Yet, even if production is largely controlled and generally successful, every producer and production technology is subject to occasional mishaps and accidents beyond his control. A margin of error. 
However, since it is the outcome, intended or not, of individual production efforts and production techniques, this risk of industrial accidents is essentially different from one producer and production process to another. Accordingly, the risk of different producers and production technologies cannot be pooled, and every producer must be insured individually. In this case, the insurer will have to know the frequency of the questionable event over time, but he cannot know the likelihood of the event at any specific point in time, except that at all times the same producer and production technology are in operation. There is no presumption that the premiums collected during any given period will be sufficient to cover all damage claims arising during that period. Rather, the profit-making presumption is that all premiums collected over many time periods will be sufficient to cover all claims during the same multi-period time span. Consequently, in this case, an insurer must hold capital reserves in order to fulfill its contractual obligation, and in calculating his premiums, he must take the present value of those reserves into account. The second question is what kind of insurance can protect against aggression and invasion by other actors? Can it be provided as group insurance, as for natural disasters, or must it be offered in the form of individual insurance, as in the case of industrial accidents? Note that both forms of insurance represent only the two possible extremes of a continuum, and that the position of any particular risk on this continuum is not definitively fixed. Owing to scientific and technological advances in meteorology, geology, or engineering, for instance, risks that were formerly regarded as homogenous, allowing for mutual insurance, can become more and more de-homogenized. Noteworthy is this tendency in the field of medical and health insurance. With the advances of genetics and genetic engineering, genetic fingerprinting, medical and health risks previously regarded as homogenous, unspecific, with regard to large numbers of people, have become increasingly more specific and heterogeneous. With this in mind, can anything specific be said about protection insurance in particular? I would think so. After all, while all insurance requires that the risk be accidental from the standpoint of the insurer and the insured, the accident of an aggressive invasion is distinctly different from that of natural or industrial disasters. Whereas natural disasters and industrial accidents are the outcome of natural forces and the operation of the laws of nature, aggression is the outcome of human actions. And whereas nature is blind and does not discriminate between individuals, whether at the same point in time or over time, an aggressor can discriminate and deliberately target specific victims and choose the timing of his attack. 6. Let me first contrast defence protection insurance with insurance against natural disasters. Frequently, an analogy between the two is drawn, and it is instructive to examine if or to what extent it holds. The analogy is that, 
just as every individual within certain geographical regions is threatened by the same risk of earthquakes, floods, or hurricanes, so does every inhabitant within the territory of the U.S., or Germany, for instance, face the same risk of being victimized by a foreign attack. Some superficial similarity, to which I shall come shortly, notwithstanding, it is easy to recognize two fundamental shortcomings in this analogy. For one, the borders of earthquake, flood, or hurricane regions are established according to objective physical criteria, and hence can be referred to as natural. In distinct contrast, political boundaries are artificial boundaries. The borders of the U.S. changed throughout the entire 19th century, and Germany did not exist as such until 1871, and was composed of 38 separate countries. Surely no one would want to claim that this redrawing of the U.S. or German borders was the outcome of the discovery that the security risk of every American or German within the greater U.S. or Germany was, contrary to the previously held opposite belief, homogenous, identical. There is a second obvious shortcoming. Nature, earthquakes, floods, hurricanes, is blind in its destruction. It does not discriminate between more and less valuable locations and objects, but attacks indiscriminately. In distinct contrast, an aggressor invader can and does discriminate. He does not attack or invade worthless locations and things, like the Sahara Desert, but targets locations and things that are valuable. Other things being equal, the more valuable a location and an object, the more likely it will be the target of an invasion. This raises the next crucial question. If political borders are arbitrary, and attacks are never indiscriminate, but directed specifically toward valuable places and things, are there any non-arbitrary borders separating different security risk, attack, zones? The answer is yes. Such non-arbitrary borders are those of private property. Private property is the result of the appropriation and or production of particular physical objects or effects by specific individuals at specific locations. Every appropriator-producer, owner, demonstrates with his actions that he regards the appropriated and produced things as valuable, goods, otherwise he would not have appropriated or produced them. The borders of everyone's property are objective and intersubjectively ascertainable. They are simply determined by the extension and dimension of the things appropriated and or produced by any one particular individual. And the borders of all valuable places and things are coextensive with the borders of all property. At any given point in time, every valuable place and thing is owned by someone. Only worthless places and things are owned by no one. Surrounded by other men, every appropriator and producer can also become the object of an attack or invasion. Every property, in contrast to things, matter, is necessarily valuable. 
Hence, every property owner becomes a possible target of other men's aggressive desires. Consequently, every owner's choice of the location and form of his property will, among countless other considerations, also be influenced by security concerns. Other things equal, everyone will prefer safer locations and forms of property to locations and forms that are less safe. Yet, regardless of where an owner and his property are located, and whatever the property's physical form, every owner, by virtue of not abandoning his property, even in view of potential aggression, demonstrates his personal willingness to protect and defend these possessions. However, if the borders of private property are the only non-arbitrary borders standing in systematic relation to the risk of aggression, then it follows that as many different security zones as separately owned property holdings exist, and that these zones are no larger than the extension of these holdings. That is, even more so than in the case of industrial accidents, the insurance of property against aggression would seem to be an example of individual rather than group, mutual protection. Whereas the accident risk of an individual production process is typically independent of its location, such that if the process were replicated by the same producer at a different location, his margin of error would remain the same, the risk of aggression against private property, the production plant, is different from one location to another. By its very nature, as privately appropriated and produced goods, property is always separate and distinct. Every property is located at a different place and under the control of a different individual, and each location faces a unique security risk. It can make a difference for my security, for instance, if I reside in the countryside or in the city, on a hill or in a valley, or near or far from a river, ocean, harbour, railroad, or street. In fact, even contiguous locations do not face the same risk. It can make a difference, for instance, if I reside higher or lower on the mountain than my neighbour further upstream or downstream, closer or more distant from the ocean, or simply north, south, west, or east of him. Moreover, every property, wherever it is located, can be shaped and transformed by its owner, so as to increase its safety and reduce the likelihood of aggression. I may acquire a gun, or safe deposit box, for instance, or I may be able to shoot down an attacking plane from my backyard, or own a laser gun that can kill an aggressor thousands of miles away. Thus, no location and no property are like any other. Every owner will have to be insured individually, and to do so, every aggression insurer must hold sufficient capital reserves. 7. The analogy typically drawn between insurance against natural disasters and external aggression is fundamentally flawed. As aggression is never indiscriminate, but selective and targeted, so is defence. Everyone has different locations and things to defend, and no one's security risk is the same as anyone else's. Yet the analogy contains a kernel of truth. 
Any similarity between natural disasters and external aggression, however, is due not to the nature of aggression and defence, but to the rather specific nature of state aggression and defence, interstate warfare. As explained above, a state is an agency that exercises a compulsory territorial monopoly of protection and the power to tax, and any such agency will be comparatively more aggressive because it can externalize the costs of such behavior onto its subjects. However, the existence of a state does not just increase the frequency of aggression, it changes its entire character. The existence of states, and especially of democratic states, implies that aggression and defense, war, will tend to be transformed into total, undiscriminating war. Consider for a moment a completely stateless world. While most property owners would be individually insured by large, often multinational insurance companies endowed with huge capital reserves, as bad risks, most if not all aggressors would be without any insurance whatever. In this situation, every aggressor or group of aggressors would want to limit its targets, preferably to uninsured property, and avoid all collateral damage. Otherwise, it would find itself confronted with one or many economically powerful professional defense agencies. Likewise, all defensive violence would be highly selective and targeted. All aggressors would be specific individuals or groups located at specific places and equipped with specific resources. In response to attacks on their clients, insurance agencies would specifically target these locations and resources for retaliation, and they would avoid any collateral damage, as they would otherwise become entangled with and liable to other insurers. All of this changes fundamentally in a statist world with interstate warfare. If one state, the US, attacks another, for instance Iraq, this is not just an attack by a limited number of people equipped with limited resources and located at a clearly identifiable place. Rather, it is an attack by all Americans and with all of their resources. Every American supposedly pays taxes to the U.S. government and is thus de facto, whether he wishes to be or not, implicated in every government aggression. Hence, while it is obviously false to claim that every American faces an equal risk of being attacked by Iraq, low or non-existent as such a risk is, it is certainly higher in New York City than in Wichita, Kansas, for instance. Every American is rendered equal with respect to his own active, if not always voluntary, participation in each of his government's aggressions. Second, just as the attacker is a state, so is the attacked, Iraq. As its US counterpart, the Iraqi government has the power to tax its population or draft it into its armed forces. As taxpayer or draftee, every Iraqi is implicated in his government's defense, just as every American is drawn into the U.S. government's attack. 
Thus, the war becomes a war of all Americans against all Iraqis, i.e. total war. The strategy of both the attacker and the defender state will be changed accordingly. While the attacker still must be selective regarding the targets of his attack, if for no other reason than that even taxing agencies, states, are ultimately constrained by scarcity, the aggressor has little or no incentive to avoid or minimize collateral damage. To the contrary, since the entire population and national wealth is involved in the defensive effort, collateral damage, whether of lives or property, is even desirable. No clear distinction between combatants and non-combatants exists. Everyone is an enemy, and all property provides support for the attacked government. Hence, everyone and everything becomes fair game. Likewise, the defender state will be little concerned about collateral damage resulting from its own retaliation against the attacker. Every citizen of the attacker state is a foe and all of their property is enemy property, and thus a possible target for retaliation. Moreover, every state, in accordance with this character of interstate war, will develop and employ more weapons of mass destruction, such as atomic bombs, rather than long-range precision weapons, such as an imaginary laser gun. Thus, the similarity between war and natural catastrophes, their seemingly indiscriminate destruction and devastation, is exclusively a feature of a statist world. 8. This brings on the last problem. We have seen that, just as all property is private, so is and must all defence be insured individually by capitalised insurance agencies, very much like industrial accident insurance. We have also seen that both forms of insurance differ in one fundamental respect. In the case of defence insurance, the location of the insured property matters. The premium per insured value will be different at different locations. Furthermore, aggressors can move around, their arsenal of weapons may change, and the entire character of aggression can alter with the presence of states. Thus, even given an initial property location, the price per insured value can alter with changes in the social environment or surroundings of this location. How would a system of competitive insurance agencies respond to this challenge? In particular, how would it deal with the existence of states and state aggression? In answering these questions, it is essential to recall some elementary economic insights. Other things being equal, private property owners generally, and business owners in particular, prefer locations with low protection costs, insurance premiums, and rising property values to those with high protection costs and falling property values. Consequently, there is a tendency toward the migration of people and goods from high-risk and falling property value areas into low-risk and increasing property value areas. Furthermore, protection costs and property values are directly related. Other things being equal, 
Higher protection costs, greater attack risks, imply lower or falling property values, and lower protection costs imply higher or increasing property values. These laws and tendencies shape the operation of a competitive system of insurance protection agencies. Whereas a tax-funded monopolist will manifest a tendency to raise the cost and price of protection, private profit-loss insurance agencies strive to reduce the cost of protection and thus bring about falling prices. At the same time, insurance agencies are more interested than anyone else in rising property values, because this implies not only that their own property holdings appreciate, but that there will also be more of other people's property for them to insure. In contrast, if the risk of aggression increases and property values fall, there is less value to be insured, while the cost of protection and price of insurance rises implying poor business conditions for an insurer. Consequently, insurance companies would be under permanent economic pressure to promote the former favourable and avert the latter unfavourable condition. This incentive structure has a fundamental impact on the operation of insurers. First, as for the seemingly easier case of the protection against common crime and criminals, a system of competitive insurers would lead to a dramatic change in current crime policy. To recognise the extent of this change, it is instructive to look first at the present and familiar statist crime policy. While it is in the interest of state agents to combat common private crime, if only so that there is more property left for them to tax. As tax-funded agents, they have little or no interest in being particularly effective at the task of preventing it, or if it has occurred, at compensating its victims and apprehending and punishing the offenders. Moreover, under democratic conditions, insult will be added to injury. For if everyone aggressors as well as non-aggressors, and residents of high-crime locations as well as those of low-crime locations, can vote and be elected to government office, a systematic redistribution of property rights from non-aggressors to aggressors, and from the residents of low-crime areas to those of high-crime areas, comes into effect, and crime will actually be promoted. Accordingly, crime and the demand for private security services of all kinds are currently at an all-time high. Even more scandalously, instead of compensating the victims of crimes it did not prevent, as it should have, the government forces its victims to pay again as taxpayers for the cost of the apprehension, imprisonment, rehabilitation and or entertainment of their aggressors. And rather than requiring high protection prices in high-crime locations and lower ones in low-crime locations, as competitive insurers would, the government does the exact opposite. It taxes more in low-crime and high-property-value areas than in high-crime and low-property-value ones, or it even subsidizes the residents of the latter locations – the slums, at the expense of those of the former, eroding the social conditions unfavourable to crime while promoting those favourable to it. 
the operation of competitive insurers would present a striking contrast. For one, if an insurer could not prevent a crime, it would have to indemnify the victim. Thus, above all, insurers would want to be effective in crime prevention. If they still could not prevent it, they would want to be efficient in the detection, apprehension, and punishment of criminal offenders, because in finding and arresting an offender, the insurer could force the criminal, rather than the victim and its insurer, to pay for the damages and cost of indemnification. More specifically, Just as insurance companies currently maintain and continually update a detailed local inventory of property values, so would they maintain and continually update a detailed local inventory of crimes and criminals. Other things being equal, the risk of aggression against any private property location increases with the proximity and the number and resources of potential aggressors. Thus, insurers would be interested in gathering information on actual crimes and known criminals and their locations, and it would be in their mutual interest of minimizing property damage to share this information with each other, just as banks now share information on bad credit risks with each other. Furthermore, insurers would also be particularly interested in gathering information on potential, not yet committed and known, crimes and aggressors, and this would lead to a fundamental overhaul of and improvement in current, statist crime statistics. In order to predict the future incidence of crime, and thus calculate its current price, premium, Insurers would correlate the frequency, description, and character of crimes and criminals with the social surroundings in which they occur and operate. And always under competitive pressure, they would develop and continually refine an elaborate system of demographic and sociological crime indicators. That is, every neighborhood would be described and its risk assessed in terms of a multitude of crime indicators, such as the composition of its inhabitants' sexes, age groups, races, nationalities, ethnicities, religions, languages, professions, and incomes. Consequently, and in distinct contrast to the present situation, all interlocal, regional, racial, national, ethnic, religious, and linguistic income and wealth redistribution would disappear, and a constant source of social conflict would be removed permanently. Instead, the emerging price, premium, structure would tend to accurately reflect the risk of each location and its particular social surrounding, such that one would only be asked to pay for the insurance risk of himself and of that associated with his particular neighborhood. More important, based on its continually updated and refined system of statistics on crime and property values, and further motivated by the noted migration tendency from high-risk low-value, henceforth bad, and low-risk high-value, henceforth good, locations, a system of competitive aggression insurers would promote a tendency towards civilizational progress rather than de-civilization.
governments, and democratic governments in particular, erode good and promote bad neighbourhoods through their tax and transfer policy. They do so also, and with possibly an even more damaging effect, through their policy of forced integration. This policy has two aspects. On the one hand, for the owners and residents in good locations and neighbourhoods who are faced with an immigration problem, forced integration means that they must accept, without discrimination, every domestic immigrant, as transient or tourist on public roads, as customer, client, resident, or neighbour. They are prohibited by their government from excluding anyone, including anyone they consider an undesirable potential risk, from immigration. On the other hand, for the owners and residents in bad locations and neighbourhoods who experience emigration rather than immigration, forced integration means that they are prevented from effective self-protection. Rather than being allowed to rid themselves of crime through the expulsion of known criminals from their neighbourhood, they are forced by their government to live in permanent association with their aggressors. The results of a system of private protection insurance would be in striking contrast to these all-too-familiar de-civilising effects and tendencies of statist crime protection. To be sure, insurers would be unable to eliminate the differences between good and bad neighbourhoods. In fact, these differences might even become more pronounced. However, driven by their interest in rising property values and falling protection costs, insurers would promote a tendency to improve by uplifting and cultivating both good and bad neighbourhoods. Thus, in good neighbourhoods, insurers would adopt a policy of selective immigration. Unlike states, they could not and would not want to disregard the discriminating inclinations among the insured toward immigrants. To the contrary, even more so than any one of their clients, insurers would be interested in discrimination i.e. in admitting only those immigrants whose presence adds to a lower crime risk and increased property values, and in excluding those whose presence leads to a higher risk and lower property values. That is, rather than eliminating discrimination, insurers would rationalise and perfect its practice. Based on their statistics on crime and property values, and in order to reduce the cost of protection and raise property values, insurers would formulate and continually refine various restrictive, exclusionary rules and procedures relating to immigration and immigrants, and thus give quantitative precision, in the form of prices and price differences, to the value of discrimination and the cost of non-discrimination between potential immigrants as high or low risk and value productive. Similarly, in bad neighbourhoods, the interests of the insurers and the insured would coincide. Insurers would not want to suppress the expulsionist inclinations among the insured toward known criminals.
Once, they would rationalise such tendencies by offering selective price cuts, contingent on specific clean-up operations. Indeed, in cooperation with one another, insurers would want to expel known criminals not just from their immediate neighbourhood, but from civilization altogether, into the wilderness or the open frontier of the Amazon jungle, the Sahara, or the polar regions. 9. What about defence against a state? How would insurers protect us from state aggression? First, it is essential to remember that governments, as compulsory tax-funded monopolies, are inherently wasteful and inefficient in whatever they do. This is also true for weapons technology and production, and for military intelligence and strategy, especially in our age of high technology. Accordingly, states would not be able to compete within the same territory against voluntarily financed insurance agencies. Moreover, most important and general among the restrictive rules relating to immigration, and designed by insurers to lower protection costs and increase property values, would be a rule concerning government agents. States are inherently aggressive and pose a permanent danger to every insurer and insured. Thus, insurers in particular would want to exclude or severely restrict, as a potential security risk, the immigration, territorial entry, of all known government agents. And they would induce the insured, either as a condition of insurance or of a lower premium, to exclude or strictly limit any direct contact with any known government agent, be it as visitor, consumer, client, resident, or neighbour. That is, wherever insurance companies operated, in all free territories, state agents would be treated as undesirable outcasts, potentially more dangerous than any common criminal. Accordingly, states and their personnel would be able to operate and reside only in territorial separation from, and on the fringes of, free territories. Furthermore, owing to the comparatively lower economic productivity of statist territories, governments would be continually weakened by the emigration of their most value-productive residents. Now, what if such a government should decide to attack or invade a free territory? This would be easier said than done. Who and what would it attack? There would be no state opponent. Only private property owners and their private insurance agencies would exist. No one, least of all the insurers, would have presumably engaged in aggression or even provocation. If there were any aggression or provocation against the state at all, this would be the action of a particular person, and in this case, the interest of the state and insurance agencies would fully coincide. Both would want to see the attacker punished and held accountable for all damages. But without any aggressor enemy, how could the state justify an attack, not to mention an indiscriminate attack? And surely it would have to justify it, for the power of every government, even the most despotic one, ultimately rests on opinion and consent, as Labouetti, Hume, Mises, and Rothbard have explained. K. 
Kings and presidents can issue an order to attack, of course, but there must be scores of men willing to execute their order to put it into effect. There must be generals receiving and following the order, soldiers willing to march, kill, and be killed, and domestic producers willing to continue producing to fund the war. If this consensual willingness were absent because the orders of the state rulers were considered illegitimate, even the seemingly most powerful government would be rendered ineffectual and would collapse, as the examples of the Shah of Iran and the Soviet Union have illustrated. Hence, from the viewpoint of the leaders of the state, an attack on free territories would be considered extremely risky. No propaganda effort, however elaborate, would make the public believe that its attack was anything but an aggression against innocent victims. In this situation, the rulers of the state would be happy to maintain monopolistic control over their present territory, rather than run the risk of losing legitimacy and all of their power in an attempt at territorial expansion. As unlikely as this may be, what if a state still attacked and or invaded a neighbouring free territory? In this case, the aggressor would not encounter an unarmed population. Only in statist territories is the civilian population characteristically unarmed. States everywhere aim to disarm their own citizens, so as to be better able to tax and expropriate them. In contrast, insurers in free territories would not want to disarm the insured, nor could they, for who would want to be protected by someone who required him, as a first step, to give up his ultimate means of self-defense? To the contrary, insurance agencies would encourage the ownership of weapons among their insured by means of selective price cuts. In addition to the opposition of an armed, private citizenry, the aggressor state would run into the resistance of not only one, but in all likelihood several insurance and reinsurance agencies. In the case of a successful attack and invasion, these insurers would be faced with massive indemnification payments. Unlike the aggressive state, however, these insurers would be efficient and competitive firms. Other things being equal, the risk of an attack, and hence the price of defense insurance, would be higher in locations in close proximity to state territories than in places far away from any state. To justify this higher price, insurers would have to demonstrate readiness vis-à-vis -vis any possible state aggression to their clients in the form of intelligence services, the ownership of suitable weapons and materials, and military personnel and training. In other words, the insurers would be effectively equipped and trained for the contingency of a state attack, and ready to respond with a twofold defense strategy. On the one hand, insofar as their operations in free territories are concerned, insurers would be ready to expel, capture, or kill every invader while trying to minimize all collateral damage. On the other hand, insofar as their operations on state territory are concerned, insurers would be prepared to target the aggressor, the state, for retaliation. 
That is, insurers would be ready to counterattack and kill, whether with long-range precision weapons or assassination commandos, state agents from the top of the government hierarchy of king, president, or prime minister, on downward, while seeking to avoid or minimize all collateral damage to the property of innocent civilians, non-state agents. They would thereby encourage internal resistance against the aggressor government, promote its delegitimization, and possibly incite the liberation and transformation of the state territory into a free country. 10. I have come full circle with my argument. First, I have shown that the idea of a protective state and state protection of private property is based on a fundamental theoretical error, and that this error has had disastrous consequences, the destruction and insecurity of all private property, and perpetual war. Second, I have shown that the correct answer to the question of who is to defend private property owners from aggression is the same as for the production of every other good or service. Private property owners, cooperation based on the division of labor, and market competition. Third, I have explained how a system of private profit-loss insurers would effectively minimize aggression, whether by private criminals or states, and promote a tendency towards civilization and perpetual peace. The only task outstanding is to implement these insights, to withdraw one's consent and willing cooperation from the state, and to promote its delegitimization in public opinion, so as to persuade others to do the same. Without the erroneous public perception and judgment of the state as necessary, and without the public's voluntary cooperation, even the seemingly most powerful government would implode and its powers evaporate. Thus liberated, we would regain our right to self-defense and be able to turn to freed and unregulated insurance agencies for efficient, professional assistance in all matters of protection and conflict resolution. Chapter 11 Secession and the Production of Defense by Jörg Guido Hulsman Few people object to the private production of shoes or rock concerts, but almost everybody believes that certain goods cannot be produced on a purely voluntary basis. Cultural goods, such as classical music and opera, welfare services, and in particular the definition and enforcement of law, have to be entrusted to compulsory organizations like the modern state. According to a school of laissez-faire economists, this view is unwarranted. These economists argue that purely private production is superior to compulsory schemes in all fields, even in the production of security and defense. Individuals and voluntary associations of individuals are not only capable of producing all goods and services that governments and other state organizations can produce, in every single case they also achieve better results than these organizations. 
One practical implication of the works of this school is that government organizations in the field of law enforcement and defense should either be abolished or reformed in such a way that they henceforth operate on purely private terms. Such reforms may be implemented, theoretically at least, through government organizations themselves. This approach is generally discussed under the headings of privatization, denationalization, desocialization, etc. Another strategy is to abolish government control without any involvement of government organizations. This approach has only recently caught the attention of economists and other social scientists who have generally discussed it under the heading of secession. But most of these works are rather unsystematic and do not discuss secession from the point of view of economic science. The present essay is meant to fill this gap. In particular, we will analyze the conditions for successful secession and demonstrate that the most important condition to be met is of an ideological rather than a military nature. Our study is also a contribution to defense economics, a notoriously unsystematic and underdeveloped part of economic theory, which has neglected the case of secession altogether. Secession defined. Secession is commonly understood as a one-sided disruption of bonds with a larger organized whole to which the secessionists have been tied. Thus, secession from a state would mean that a person or a group of persons withdraws from the state as a larger whole to which they have been attached. However, defining the entity from which the secessionists defect as a larger whole is not useful and defies common sense. Consider, for example, the case of a tenant, say Smith, who refuses to pay his rent. Even though Smith is but a part of a larger community of landlords and tenants, one would not therefore speak of Smith's action as secession, but rather as a breach of contract. The same thing would have to be said about a business division that defects from a firm. Here, too, the withdrawal would not qualify as an act of secession, but as theft and breach of contract. It is not useful to classify breaches of contract as secessions, because such a definition would be too wide. Our aim is to distinguish disruptions of social bonds that are good, because they bring about a purely private order, from inherently antisocial, bad disruptions, such as theft, fraud, murder, and breach of contract. We thus have to come up with a more pertinent definition that reconciles common sense and the purposes of our analysis. We will use the term secession to denote the disruption of what Mises calls a hegemonic bond, as opposed to the disruption of a contractual bond. As Mises points out, quote, there are two different kinds of social cooperation, cooperation by virtue of contract and coordination, and cooperation by virtue of command and subordination, or hegemony. 
In the frame of a contractual society, the individual members exchange definite quantities of goods and services of a definite quality. In choosing subjection to a hegemonic body, a man neither gives nor receives anything that is definite. He integrates himself into a system in which he has to render indefinite services and will receive what the director is willing to assign to him. End quote. One can further clarify the difference between contractual and hegemonic bonds by taking a closer look at the way by which the Misesian director acquires property. There are in fact only two fundamentally distinct ways of acquiring property that already has a rightful owner. Either the property is acquired with the consent of its present owner, or it is acquired against his will, thus violating his property rights. Tertium non datur. In the words of the German sociologist Franz Oppenheimer, either one uses the economic means of appropriation, or one uses the political means of appropriation. By consenting to the transfer of his property to another person, the present owner renders this transfer definite, whereas all transfers that do not respect his will are thereby indefinite. Violations of property rights committed by normal people are everywhere held in contempt. What murderers, thieves, robbers, etc. do is seen to be incompatible with life in society. By distinct contrast, the director violates other person's property without being considered a criminal. The other members of society, or at least a substantial majority among them, regard his violations of other people's property rights as compatible with civilized intercourse. Therefore, they actively support these activities when they are directed against other persons, and do not obstruct them when they are directed against themselves. This is the nature of the hegemonic bond between the director ruler and its subjects. Now, secession is the one-sided disruption of a hegemonic bond by the subjects. It thus means two things. A. That the subjects no longer support the rulers violating property rights of other people, for example, they stop paying taxes or serving the ruler, and B. They start to resist him when he violates their own or other people's property rights. Secession is a special subclass of political reform. It is not the rulers who carry out the reform by modifying existing political bonds, but the ruled who unilaterally abolish these bonds. More precisely, the secessionists abolish the hegemonic aspect of existing institutions. For example, in the area of the production of defense, secession does not necessarily mean that a presently existing police force or a presently existing army, is dissolved. The police or the army could continue to exist, provided it operates on the basis of purely voluntary bonds with the rest of society. There would then be no more draft, and their monetary proceeds would no longer stem from taxation, etc. Secession as a Continuum Secession is not all or nothing, 
but covers a whole continuum of disruptions of hegemonic bonds. It may sever only a part of all existing hegemonic bonds, and it may sever geographically unrelated islands, rather than territories with contiguous and connected borders. In some historical cases, continuous territories defected from a larger geographical whole. For example, when the US seceded from Great Britain in 1776, the Southern Confederacy from the US in 1861, or satellite states like Estonia, Lithuania, Ukraine, or Armenia from the Soviet Union in the early 1990s. By contrast, at other times and places, secession was limited to geographical islands within larger territories that continued to maintain the hegemonic bonds. Such was the case, for example, with the seceding of Swiss cities and cantons in 1291, which for centuries did not form an integrated territory, or with the Hansa cities, which in their best days were free, that is, not subject to imperial taxation. Also, throughout the High Middle Ages, various individual cities, especially in northern Italy but also in Flanders and southern Germany, defected for some time from the Holy Roman Empire. In most cases, they then either were ruled by city patriarchs or became city republics. The continuum of geographical dispersion of political regimes is best illustrated by the present-day case of Bala, a Belgian town in the Netherlands. Strikingly, this enclave is not politically homogenous, but has Dutch enclaves within it, and these in turn have Belgian enclaves in them. Thus, some streets are Dutch and subject to Dutch laws, whereas other streets are Belgium and subject to Belgian laws, and sometimes even the houses on one street belong to different nations and are subject to different laws. They are marked by Dutch and Belgian flags. Another good illustration of the geographical possibilities for secession is the disintegration of the Frankish Empire in the mid-800s, which established the feudal order so characteristic for the Middle Ages. As a consequence, the German emperors only controlled a few remaining islands of imperial fortresses, the Pfalzen, and monasteries. Rather than being an exception, hegemonic bonds with islands of territory surrounded by independent territories were in fact the normal case for centuries of Western civilization. By heritage, marriage, purchase, and also by secession, medieval aristocrats would come to own territories that were sometimes dispersed all over Europe. Similarly, dozens of free or imperial cities were only subject to the emperor, who was weak almost throughout the entire history of the empire, and often was surrounded by territories belonging to local aristocrats. This state of affairs was particularly characteristic for Germany until the Thirty Years' War reversed the tendency. Colonial possessions of European powers in other parts of the world are another example of geographically disconnected territories under common hegemonic bonds. And the process by which, after World War II, 
most of these territories gained their independence was, of course, nothing else but secession. Finally, as we have mentioned above, secession does not necessarily mean that all hegemonic ties between the ruler and its reluctant subjects are severed. Here, too, we face a continuum. Secession might simply mean that the subjects demand lower taxes or refuse to serve in the army of the ruler. It can mean that they do not respect special monopoly privileges granted to certain individuals or groups. Also, the bonds between governments and their various subjects by no means have to be homogenous. This is amply illustrated by historical evidence. For example, the Jews in Central and Eastern Europe for centuries not only suffered, but also profited from their particular status, which often granted them some form of moderate territorial sovereignty. The famous ghettos, far from being institutions of pure oppression, as they are often represented today, were also islands of freedom from some oppressive laws that bound most other citizens. For example, the ghetto Jews were exempt from non-Jewish jurisdiction and various forms of taxation. Another example is the case of soldiers and foreign diplomats, who are commonly subjected to different sets of rules than the rest of the population, although in the case of soldiers, these ties are both more severe in some respects and more lax in others. Most of these special regimes have not been created by secession. For our purposes, however, it is sufficient to note that such regimes, as a matter of fact, can exist next to one another, for this proves such a state of affairs can be a realizable goal of secession. The only limits of the geographical dispersion of political regimes are given by the boundaries of private property. Theoretically, each property owner, and in particular each landowner, might choose to set up a different set of rules that the users of his property, land, have to respect. Let us notice in this context that, even if I rejected a government only in thought, and obeyed it merely out of prudence, this would already be originary secession, since my brains are undoubtedly part of my property. The government would then no longer control my thoughts, and its control of my behavior would also be diminished. Even if the ultimate goal of a secessionist movement is the liberation of an integrated territory, the establishment of isolated secessionist strongholds is a first step. Such territorial islands are usually dependent on the exchange of goods and services with other territories. The secessionists are therefore compelled to abolish trade barriers and adopt free market policies. In so doing, they provide a living example for the beneficial operation of purely voluntary forms of social organization. Since this is the best conceivable advertisement for the idea they stand for, secessionist islands are likely to attract ever more territories to adopt their model, and thus close the gaps on the political map. Benefits of Secession 
Before dealing with questions relating to the realization of secessionist urges, let us point out two major advantages of political reform by secession. First, by its very nature, secession does not transform but abolishes hegemonic bonds. All other types of political reform keep these bonds intact and merely modify the way the ruler uses his power. Core organizations like the army, the police forces, the courts, etc. keep their monopoly and all competitors are outlawed. As a consequence, in the best of all cases, the reform makes the burden of these monopolies somewhat lighter to bear. More open-minded, tolerant persons replace dictatorially inclined office holders. More acceptable political regimes, in our day democracies, replace regimes that do not meet the political fashions of the day. In our days, for example, monarchies. However, after the zeal of the reformers has ebbed away, nothing stands in the way of a further expansion of the state's monopoly powers in other areas, such as welfare, art, economy, etc. And in many cases, even the modest reforms of the existing state organizations come to be redressed after the zeal of the reform generation has ebbed away. In the worst of all cases, and unfortunately these cases happen to be the majority, the reforms are brought about by the creation of additional hegemonic bonds with a more encompassing political agency, centralization. To get rid of aristocratic privileges, the classical liberals first supported the king against the lesser aristocrats, and then concentrated further powers in the democratic central state to fight all regional and local forms of monarchism and aristocracy. Rather than curbing political power, they had merely shifted and centralized it, creating even more powerful political institutions than those they were trying to supersede. The classical liberals thus bought their short-run successes with very burdensome long-run annuities, some of which we have paid in the 20th century. This is the reason why classical liberalism ultimately failed. It is important to realize that the quick successes of the classical liberals are not unrelated to the totalitarian schemes that plagued the past century. The fundamental fact is that the liberal reforms were not spontaneously adopted by the various local constituencies, but were imposed on them. It is true that this technique was very effective in realizing the classical liberal program all at once in the whole territory controlled by the new democratic central state. Without it, this process would have been gradual, and it would have implied that islands of the Ancien Régime would have survived for a very long time. Yet, like all mere techniques, this was a two-edged sword that would eventually be turned against life, liberty, and property. It is not inappropriate to point out an analogy with the laws of the business cycle. Just as business investments unsupported by genuine savings do not spur genuine growth, but 
after a brief period of growth illusions, lead straight into an economic bust, so the imposition of liberty does not create genuine liberty, but, after a brief period of liberty illusions, leads straight into totalitarian nightmares. The fact is that neither in Europe nor in the United States of America has classical liberalism managed to establish a public order that effectively safeguarded private property and individual liberty for more than a couple of decades. This contrasts sharply with the Middle Ages, when the Christian religion for centuries circumscribed the duties and rights of all citizens of the prospective city of God. Many writers have observed that the divine order enshrined the subjection of the population. It is less often pointed out that it also enshrined the subjection of the rulers. Christianity limited the medieval aristocrats in all their endeavours, and these limitations effectively guaranteed the liberties of the subjects. In Europe, classical liberalism never created deep roots in the first place, and its short-lived blossom started to perish at the end of the 19th century, leading shortly after to the well-known socialist schemes of communism, fascism, and national socialism. In the US, the unsuccessful War of Secession gave birth to a welfare-warfare state, which has grown steadily ever since. It might be true that the US government cannot yet compare in importance with the German National Socialists or the Russian Bolsheviks as far as its relative internal power is concerned. In absolute terms, however, it has already become the largest and mightiest government the world has ever known, and this supremacy is felt especially in matters of foreign policy and war. With hindsight, the real question is not, as most 20th century libertarians have assumed, why the happy days of classical liberalism faded away and ushered in a new era of unprecedented government control. The real question is how classical liberalism could flourish even the few decades that it did flourish. The answer is probably related to the time lag required for the new democratic central states to consolidate themselves. The new democratic ways had to penetrate the brains. The new national political centre stage had to slowly gain its due place in individual consciousness, etc. Clearly, secession avoids all these fatal long-run consequences of imposing liberty. It might take a long time before the conditions for successful local secession are given, and secession might then leave many dark, politically unenlightened spots on the political map. However, at least these reforms would be genuine accomplishments that do not already contain the seeds of their own destruction. A second and related advantage of secession is that it is the only type of political reform that is not only able to bring about a private property regime, but that itself respects the principles of this regime. Whereas a government is by its nature a compulsory organization, 
the organization of the political means, secession is an activity fully harmonious with the respect of private property and the economic means. It thus fulfills a major ethical requirement of libertarian reform, namely that the reform itself should not create new violations of property. And this in turn assures that the new order resulting from secession is more peaceful and viable than any imposed order resulting from standard reforms, which leave the political compound intact. Conditions for Secession Wetty's Law Secession does not lead to war by logical necessity. However, Government has an obvious interest in the maintenance of the hegemonic bonds from which it profits. Since it is therefore likely to resist their severance by the use of force, the secessionists must find the means to overcome this resistance. The paramount technical problem of the secessionists is, of course, that the government is usually far better equipped with the arms and machinery needed in violent conflicts. Moreover, the government usually controls most of the existing organizations created for the efficient conduct of violent conflicts, police and military. In short, Government enjoys, by and large, a monopoly of war material and war organizations. However, these short-run problems can be overcome in due time. Criminals and underground military organizations, for example the Irish Republican Army, the Rota Army Fraction, Action Direct, or, before its immersion into the Palestinian Authority, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, acquire the weapons they need with relative ease on the black market. Foreign governments often support them in this endeavor. Moreover, the very existence of underground military organizations demonstrates that it is possible to build up such structures, especially if foreign powers provide advisors and training grounds. And usually such foreign powers exist at all times and all places. It is true that secessionist forces are not able to build up an industrial base in their home country and therefore have to rely on relatively light weaponry. Pistols, guns, machine guns, small cannons, grenades, etc. They will not be able to enjoy the ready services of tanks and fighter jets, and still less so of combat ships or even large military bases with hospitals, arms depots, etc. However, heavy weapons and military infrastructure seem to be especially advantageous in armed conflicts between clearly identifiable combatants, each of which has a single organization, as in the case of wars between modern states whereas they seem to lose their effectiveness in encounters with enemies who lack these features. Famous examples of the failure of modern state armies against such amorphous enemies are the Vietnam War of the U.S. Army, the Afghanistan War of the Red Army, the U.N. expedition to Somalia, or the attempted first invasion of the Russian army into Chechnya, 1994-96. 
As this is written, a small group of Hezbollah warriors has just driven the modern and highly successful Israeli army out of South Lebanon, which it had occupied for 20 years. These cases illustrate that secessionist insurrections are not necessarily doomed to failure for reasons of equipment and organization. Neither is sheer number a problem. It is true that the secessionists are a minority of the overall population, and they might be a very small minority indeed. But this is the fate of all politically active groups, even of governments themselves. It is a fact that all members of government taken together are, at all times and all places, a minority too. Government could not possibly rule if it had to supervise each citizen at every second of every hour. It can only rule because the citizens, by and large, comply with its commands, so that it can concentrate its energies on combating those few recalcitrant individuals or groups who do not so comply. This is one of the great political laws. Hegemonic bonds exist because a majority voluntarily complies with them. We might call it Boetie's Law, after the 16th century French philosopher Étienne de la Boétie, who expressed the matter succinctly, quote, It is the inhabitants themselves who permit, or rather bring about, their own subjection, since by ceasing to submit, they would put an end to their servitude, end quote. In short, it is not the ruler who turns the citizens into subjects, Rather, the people choose to subject themselves to the ruler. The government seems active and the citizens appear to be passive subjects. Yet, as a matter of fact, the subjects alone are the ultimate social agency by virtue of their free decision-making power. And since by virtue of their free will they can bring hegemonic bonds into existence, they can also abolish them by the token of the same liberty. Why do the citizens choose subjection? Because, in their opinion, this is the right, or at any rate the best, thing to do under the present circumstances. Ideas or opinions that justify the existence of hegemonic bonds are therefore the ultimate foundation of political power. This is why foreign rulers, who had no ideological legitimacy in the eyes of the population, often chose to rule through local vassals who, due to tradition, had such legitimacy. For example, the Romans ruled the Jews through Jewish kings, and the British Empire ruled the huge territory and population of India through local rulers. It is also the reason why modern states have taken particular care to bring organized education, schools, universities, under their control. In short, government rules by virtue of ideologies that justify hegemonic bonds, rather than by sheer force. Thus, we see that the single most important factor for the success of secessions is not of a technical nature. Like all transformations of society, secessions are prepared by and depend on previous transformations in the spiritual realm. The real foundation of hegemonic bonds is the ideology that, in the eyes of the citizens, justifies the actions of their government.
Therefore, successful secession presupposes a previous transformation of these political beliefs. Conditions for Secession Genocide and Expulsion So far we have seen that a necessary condition for successful secession is that a substantial majority of the population... What this means may vary according to particular circumstances of time and place, repudiates the hegemonic bonds that they have hitherto accepted. This does not mean, however, that ideological supremacy in a territory automatically assures the success of the secessionist movement. If the rulers can mobilize enough forces to either kill or expel the rebelling population, then the secessionists might be doomed too. Both techniques have been frequently applied in the history of counterinsurgency. Genocide, for example, was inflicted upon the seceding Vendée, where the French Republic, within a few months, raised over 100 hamlets and villages to the ground. In the 20th century, it was also the preferred solution of communist regimes to solve their secessionist problems. Outstanding examples are Soviet Russia's extermination of the Kulaks and the ravages of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. Modern examples of expulsion or relocation as a means to combat and prevent secessionist movements include, for example, the case of the Philippines, 1901-2, of Malaya, 1954-55, and of the former German Eastern Provinces, which today are parts of Russia, Poland, and the Czech Republic, from which the German population has been expelled in the aftermath of World War II. Right now, plans for the expulsion of Palestinians from Israel are openly discussed in the world press. Even if the ruler can mobilize sufficient forces to inflict genocide or expulsion on the secessionists, he might choose not to use these forces. Apart from personal scruples, this might be the result of the other loyal citizens' unwillingness to support such measures. Also, as far as the population involved in industrial division of labor is concerned, genocide would clearly be economically disastrous for the ruler himself. Secession and Private Warfare Let us now assume that the above-mentioned conditions for secession are given. There are a substantial number of secessionists who are no longer willing to endure their hegemonic bonds. These persons no longer regard the rulers as legitimate governors, but as criminal usurpers, and the rulers themselves are either unable or unwilling to expel or slaughter the secessionists. Now, the armed forces of these rulers are still in place and enforce the population's financial support in the form of taxation. How can this enforcement of the old hegemonic bonds be prevented? Clearly, there is no other solution to this problem but the one applied to prevent all other forms of violations of property. The criminals must be punished for their past deeds, and, through the prospect of punishment, deterred from further aggression. In short, the secessionists have to use force to combat the armed forces. 
Initially, they cannot rely on any organization to wage this war, since all armed forces, police and military, are monopoly organizations that are owned by the ruling government. However, as we have already pointed out, and as we will discuss in some more detail below, this is only a temporary problem. The main problem is a different one. It relates to the nature of the new defense organizations with which the hegemonic forces shall be expelled. Indeed, one has to make sure that all individuals and organized war measures on the side of the secessionists are in strict consonance with the very private order that they seek to bring about. They have to respect the private property rights of all persons involved, be they friends or foes. This is so not only out of ethical concern, but also out of very practical considerations. For, if the military organizations that are bound to emerge in the course of the war, some of which will become defense institutions after the war has ended, rely in their operations on violations of property rights, then the seeds of the next hegemony are already sown. At best, then, a new government will replace the old one, and the hegemony remains. In short, it is imperative that the secessionists' war be a purely private war. From the outset, violations of property rights must not be tolerated, so that the various militias and other organizations do not become tainted with the cardinal sin of establishing hegemonic bonds. This is the only way to ensure that, after the war, they will all be healthy elements of the new private order. Additionally, it will have the effect of winning ever more support for the secession among neutral persons, and even among its former enemies. Private warfare does not mean that only isolated individuals engage in combat. In fact, it is unlikely that isolated action will play any major role in the secessionists' war, since the cooperative production of defense, like all cooperations, is more physically efficient than isolated production. However, private warfare clearly includes isolated activities of self-defense. One might wonder whether individual undertakings have even the slightest chance of success against the established forces of the police and army. Yet they do. It is true that they cannot overthrow the police and army all on their own, but they can annoy them, put unexpected obstacles in their way, terrorize them in various manners, and thus disturb them in their tranquility. Given the context we are assuming, namely that a great number of citizens are in a secessionist mood, it is very unlikely that the police would catch an isolated warrior, because he can rely on a vast network of people willing to provide shelter and other support to persons like himself. This is an important incentive that will stimulate ever more people to become part-time pains in the neck of the police and army. More important than such isolated activities are, of course, the coordinated and organized efforts of secessionist militias. They can inflict considerable harm on the unwanted government forces. They can capture enemy forces and disarm them. They can break into arms depots and equip themselves at the government's expense. 
and they can disrupt the government's communication lines and logistical network. In some cases, they might even manage to control a small territory, but only for a short period of time, since such small units cannot withstand a confrontation with the large masses of the regular army. Such troops can surely also rely on the willingness of the population to provide them with shelter, food, and other forms of support. Yet it is important to realize that they profit from the population in many more, and more important, ways. The spontaneous help of individual citizens, families, or small groups is indeed of paramount importance for the very military operation of the secessionists. We have to bear in mind that the secessionists, at least at the beginning, do not have any kind of organized logistical support or intelligence service. The spontaneous help by the population fills this void by providing the necessary infrastructure, food, shelter, new supplies of ammunition, communication, etc., This spontaneous backing integrates the more or less isolated warriors and militias economically and socially into a larger society. They benefit from the division of labor on a much wider scale and thus immensely increase their productivity. Although militias are commonly unpaid organizations, it is very conceivable that, in the course of time, a body of paid full-time warriors will emerge. This professionalization would indeed be a natural step in a growing underground economy, and it would again spur the productivity of the secessionist warfare. One should not expect that all secessionist militias be organized under one single command. Quite to the contrary, the natural thing to happen is for various independent groups to form themselves spontaneously. It might be that this is not sufficient to attain all military goals. We will examine this issue below, but it is certainly a workable procedure. For since these groups have a common goal that they all pursue by the same clearly circumscribed activities prevention of violations of property by government forces, and restitution of property to the rightful owners, they do not need to be coordinated by command. As long as they respect private property rights in all their endeavors, their actions are intrinsically harmonious and cannot possibly contradict one another. Each one of them thus contributes to the common goal, facilitating the tasks of the others. Hence we see that, even short of the formation of a secessionist army under unified command, the secessionists can create much trouble for the government troops, without running any major danger for their lives. The comparatively primitive secessionist warfare in many respects matches and outwits the police and military precisely because it is not just single warriors and small militias who fight for government troops. Rather, it is the whole secessionist movement that engages in the division of labor that sustains their efforts. The results for the government are, by and large, devastating. Most importantly, the costs of controlling the secessionist territories rise astronomically, since small numbers of secessionists typically tie up large occupying forces. For example, 
After Napoleon had invaded Spain and beaten the regular army, he encountered the fierce resistance of spontaneously organized warriors. Fewer than 50,000 of these famous guerrillas engaged up to 250,000 soldiers, or half of his army, which eventually withdrew from Spain. Similarly, Russian partisans engaged up to 20 German divisions in World War II and were thus instrumental in the defeat of the German forces. More recently, in 1960, 20,000 Algerian warriors engaged 400,000 well-trained French soldiers and forced them to withdraw. In our days, 500 Hezbollah warriors are reported to have engaged 20,000 world-class soldiers of the Israeli army, which just withdrew from South Lebanon. Thus, it is patent that, even short of military success, secessionists can easily create a situation in which it is simply no longer economically worthwhile to attempt to rule them. Guerrilla Warfare The above considerations about the effects of relatively primitive forms of private warfare are by no means a mere intellectual pastime, speculations that could not possibly be applied in the real world. Quite to the contrary, warfare of this sort on a largely private basis has been practiced countless times in the history of mankind. It is as old as the hills and predates regular warfare. To be sure, it is not generally known as primitive private warfare, but as partisan warfare, small war, guerrilla warfare, or low-intensity conflict. Most famous is, of course, the expression guerrilla warfare, from the Guerra de Guerrillas fought by Spanish partisans against Napoleon which in the second half of the 20th century has been popularized by communist warrior theoreticians. Yet it was practiced at virtually all times and all places, long before the politically fashionable recent guerrilla wars in China, Yugoslavia, Cuba, and Algeria took place. In antiquity, for example, Sparta successfully seceded from the Athenian League, a federation-turned-nation-state, in the Peloponnesian Guerrilla War, and Judas Maccabeus fought a guerrilla war against the Syrians. In the Middle Ages, the Welsh guerrilla resisted for 200 years the Norman invasion, which had previously swallowed England after one decisive battle against King Harold. After centuries-long struggles, guerrilla war was eventually lost in Ireland. It was also waged for decades in Holland in the 16th century, and eventually won. More recently, non-communist guerrilla warfare was practiced during and after the American secession, by Arab rebels under the Englishman T.E. Lawrence against the Turks, and by German SS troops at the end of World War II and after. Of all historic forms of military organization, this one best harmonizes with the principles of a civilized society. Decision-making is decentralized on the level of various militias, which communicate with one another but operate independently. The bonds between them and the population are typically contractual bonds. Mises, 
or more precisely, voluntary bonds that link combatants and inhabitants of the seceding territory through a spontaneous network with a common organizational principle, respect and defense of private property. In distinct contrast to successful conventional warfare, successful guerrilla warfare is thus particularly well suited to prepare the advent of a purely voluntary society. The hegemonic bonds on which regular troops rely, in particular taxation, inflation, and conscription, are commonly perpetuated after the end of hostilities. By contrast, the very weakness of guerrilla militias taken individually prevents them from abusing their position. As a consequence, there are simply no hegemonic bonds to be perpetuated after the war. Guerrilla warfare in this century has been predominantly waged by communist insurrectionists. However, This does not contradict our contention that guerrilla war is essentially a form of private war. It was only after their victories that the communists in China, Yugoslavia, Algeria, Cuba, Vietnam and elsewhere erected compulsory regimes. They claimed that these regimes were a natural outgrowth of their guerrilla organizations and that guerrilla warfare was essentially communist warfare. Yet reality was different. Mao Zedong and Fidel Castro paid for their supplies in cash. Their recruits were not conscripted but joined them voluntarily and they were able to rally the population behind them not so much for their social agendas, but for the fact that, at least initially, they fought foreign enemies, China, Yugoslavia, Algeria, or rulers that were commonly perceived as puppets of foreign governments, Cuba. This confirms the broad historical record that the average guerrilla is mainly motivated by patriotic and sometimes nationalistic motives, and that virtually all insurrections are liberation movements that seek freedom for their fatherland from undesired rule, often undesired foreign rule. The paramount importance of patriotism and liberty as driving forces of insurrection explains why guerrilla warfare could rally entire populations behind communist insurrections. To be sure, the communists claimed that it was their war per se which won the people over to communism, yet the people's real desire was liberation from a government that they perceived as oppressive, and they would follow almost anybody who would take the lead of a liberation movement. Most of them had never before heard about Marx or Lenin, and what they knew about the events in Russia, if they cared at all, They learned from fanatical communists, and of course they could not even imagine that things would become worse afterward. Significantly, the above-mentioned communist guerrillas typically had some kind of primitive tax system, and their political aim was not to abolish the state apparatus they were fighting, but to take it over, which they did. However, all this changes nothing about the fact that even these guerrillas essentially relied on voluntary cooperation of the population. 
A famous practitioner of guerrilla warfare emphasizes the crucial importance of backing by the population for the success of insurrectionist movements. Quote, the guerrilla fighter needs full help from the people of the area. This is an indispensable condition. This is clearly seen by considering the case of bandit gangs that operate in a region. They have all the characteristics of a guerrilla army. Homogeneity, respect for the leader, valor, knowledge of the ground, and often even a good understanding of the tactics to be employed. The only thing missing is support of the people, and inevitably these gangs are captured and exterminated by the public force. End quote. Another astute observer, writing under the immediate impact of the communist guerrilla successes, forcefully underscores this statement. Quote, when we speak of the guerrilla fighter, we are speaking of the political partisan, an armed civilian whose principal weapon is not his rifle or his machete, but his relationship to the community, the nation in which and for which he fights. The population is key to the entire struggle. Indeed, it is the population which is doing the struggling. The guerrilla, who is of the people in a way which the government soldier cannot be. For if the regime were not alienated from the people, whence the revolution, fights with the support of the non-combatant civilian populace. It is his camouflage, his quartermaster, his recruiting office, his communications network, and his efficient, all-seeing intelligence service. End quote. Many failures of secessionist movements highlight this crucial fact. Wherever the insurrectionists could not obtain the support of the larger population, they were never able to remain independent for any considerable time. Such was the case, for example, with the medieval northern Italian cities, which, having gained their independence from the Holy Roman Empire, at once started establishing their hegemony over the adjacent territories, thus alienating these populations. One reason for the Vendée's near extinction in 1793 was the alienation of the militarily competent aristocracy from the militarily incompetent peasant population. The Greek guerrilla insurrection of 1946-49 failed because it alienated the population by conscription and raids on the villages. In 1958-61, the Algerian organization d'Armée Secrète alienated even the patriotic layers of the populations of France and Algeria with their terror acts. And more recent attempts to wage guerrilla warfare in Peru, Shining Path, Kurdistan, PKK, and several Western European nations failed because the insurrectionists did not have any backing in the population. They were isolated terrorist groups, antagonizing the population as much as the government. Let us observe, however, that the secessionists are not the only ones to face the danger of alienating the population. It is precisely because the forces of the ruler are confronted by the very same problem that a secessionist movement does not have to fear the initial military supremacy of the ruling government. Large bombs, 
aircraft carriers, nuclear weapons, large units of soldiers, etc., are certainly useful in confrontations with similarly organized enemy forces, but they are counterproductive when it comes to fighting guerrilla units. When a battalion of 500 soldiers shows up in a village to capture a single man, the inevitable result is to alienate the population. For whatever the deeds of the man, such action is a clear sight of either cowardice or distrust. Similarly, large bombs are never, and tanks very seldom, used in a discriminate way. Almost inevitably, they hurt or kill innocent people, thus alienating these persons and their friends and relatives. The same result obtains when the ruling forces do not care to wage a fair war, as our libertarian warriors do. That is, if they do not respect the property rights of the population and their enemies. The pledge to respect the property of friends and foes at first glance looks like an imprudent impediment of one's liberty of action. But it is not. Rather, it is the most powerful means to convey the support of the population. It is therefore no military disadvantage when our libertarian warriors pledge to respect the property of friends and foes. Quite to the contrary, it would be disastrous for the government not to quickly adopt the same strategy. Hence, the initial advantages of the ruling forces, in terms of equipment and moral boundlessness, are merely apparent ones. Soon, they will have to fight the secessionists on almost equal terms. These considerations also suggest a cautious use of mercenaries, that is, foreign professional warriors. They lack emotional ties with the secessionists and do not share their ultimate goals. They have no bonds whatever to the non-secessionist rest of the population, and thus their intervention entails a high risk of alienation. At best, then, mercenaries are useless, for in the case that virtually all persons living in the secessionist territory seek secession, their help would not be necessary. It is then a fundamental fact that warfare for the sake of controlling any given territory is inconceivable without voluntary cooperation between warriors and the rest of the population. This is why it perfectly suits the military needs of libertarian secessionist movements. It is no accident that, quote, guerrilla warfare has been the favorite tactic of separatist minority movements fighting the central government, end quote, and that although the process of decolonization has worsened the prospects of guerrilla warfare, this is not so in the context of secession. In short, guerrilla warfare by its very nature is warfare based on the respect of private property and voluntary cooperation. It is private warfare short of the formation of large military units. This is so notwithstanding the fact that, historically, guerrilla warfare has commonly been intermingled with statist elements, such as small-scale taxation. Guerrilla warfare being essentially private warfare on a small scale, it follows that the conditions for successful libertarian secession are the very same conditions that must be given for successful guerrilla warfare.
Libertarian secession presupposes that a great number of inhabitants of a territory desire to establish a private property order and to rid themselves of the present rulers. These persons provide the guerrillas with the civil network that enables them to wage their war and to wage it successfully. We can thus give a more specific description of the majority required by Bueti's law. It must be a number of persons sufficient to sustain guerrilla warfare. By distinct contrast, guerrilla warfare that merely seeks to overthrow the present state and to put another regime at its place ultimately contradicts itself. Sooner or later, it must replace volunteers by conscripts and donations by taxes. In short, voluntary support by compulsion. Clearly, it then will no longer be guerrilla warfare, and consequently will lose all of its advantages. Two conclusions can be drawn from this. First, the most important activity of a secessionist movement does not take place in armed battle, but in the battle of ideas. The secessionists have to persuade their fellows of the legitimacy and importance of their cause, thus making the idea of a private property order generally accepted. Only if they win this battle will they be able to build up libertarian guerrilla organizations that could eventually overthrow the armed forces of the government. Second, therefore, there is no need to rely on compulsory schemes like taxation and conscription to sustain their war efforts. Either the secessionists have the necessary support of the population, then all compulsion would be superfluous and possibly counterproductive, or they do not have it, and then guerrilla warfare is no viable option for them at all and even compulsory measures could not help them. Economic Efficiency of Private Warfare We now have to deal with the question of how economically efficient spontaneously formed private war organizations and even clandestine guerrilla professionals are as compared to government troops and whether they can be any match for the latter in purely military terms. Voluntary military organizations do respect private property rights in all aspects of their activities. Their soldiers are either volunteers or hired, and their funds stem either from donations or from defense contracts with private individuals or organizations. By contrast, compulsory military organizations do, at least in some respect, rely on violations of private property rights. In particular, they might rely on conscription and or compulsory finance through taxation. Let us first consider the issue of ultimate control. Who makes the ultimate military decisions in private and in statist warfare? In private warfare, ultimate control rests with each private property owner who is somehow involved in the production of defense. Since each soldier, donor, and customer controls his property, he can keep it invested in, or withdraw it from, the production process at any time. Most individuals do not have big stakes in the production of defense, or in any other process, Yet the fact is that they do have some control over the process, 
and that this control is clearly circumscribed by their property. If they withdraw their patronage, if they refuse to work for the army or to finance it, they do curtail its production process in favour of non-military ventures. They may have various motives for withdrawing their support. A person might stop working as a soldier to earn a better living in a steel mill, or a capitalist might withdraw his credit to invest in a more profitable shoe plant. But a soldier might also give notice, and a capitalist or donor might withdraw his funds because he does not trust the management of this military unit, or he might see no more task for the unit, for example because there are presently no known enemies, and thus look for other productive challenges. The military might even disgust them now, etc. Yet whatever their motives are, in a private order, individuals can make their value judgments felt. Deciding how to use their time and property, they do have an impact on the whole structure of production. In a private order, the consumption and investment decisions of all citizens rigidly connect and steadily equilibrate the production of defence with all other productions and since investment decisions ultimately seek to satisfy consumption needs, it is the citizens as consumers who determine which defence services are produced, by which technique, and by which type of organisation. If consumers feel a more urgent need for military services, for example because they apprehend the attack of a foreign enemy, they will increase spending on military goods and services. Some will buy guns and cannons for themselves. Others will also join local or national militias. And still others will simply subscribe to the services of professional defence agencies. For example, the standard contract of an airborne unit could provide that the unit combat enemy forces within a radius of X miles from the property of the patron. As a consequence, the production of these defence goods and services becomes more profitable and will thus attract human and material resources that otherwise would have been invested in the production of apples, roofs, etc. On the other hand, consumers reducing their demand of military services because they sense no immediate threat will reduce their spending on such services, and thus make their production less profitable. The defence market will be adjusted accordingly. Its overall size will shrink in favour of other markets, and its structure will adjust too. Different forms of organisations will offer different types of goods and services that fit the reduced willingness of the consumers to spend on defence. For example, it is possible that the goods and services used by defence professionals, not only fighter jets, heavy armament, uniforms, but also staff positions of military planners and military theorists, etc., will be more affected by a shrinking market than those used by amateur militias, small guns, small field cannons, mobile radar equipment, etc., in short, in a free society, the production of defence is always as perfectly adjusted to the needs of the citizens as is humanly possible. 
with consumers directing and balancing all productions through their spending decisions, the producers of defensive services are in permanent competition with one another, and with the producers of all other types of goods and services. This forces them to use their resources as diligently and efficiently as possible. They simply cannot afford waste, since it would curtail their income and also the spending on their product. Moreover, since in a free society there would be various defense organizations competing for the same human and material resources, these organizations would be embedded in a system of market prices. Hence, they could use the precious yardstick of economic calculation to select the most efficient technology and the most efficient form of military organization for any defense problem at hand. By contrast, in statist warfare, ultimate military decisions are typically taken by the owners of the production facilities, that is, those who control the tanks, air fighters, ships, guns, bases, etc. This does not mean that statist military leaders are always to be found in the ranks of generals. In most Western countries, for example, this is surely not the case at least in peacetime. In these countries, the militarily relevant decisions are taken by high-ranking civil executives, such as the defense minister, the president of the republic, the prime minister, or the chancellor. Yet in any case, statist production of defense means those who run the state can impose their value judgments to the detriment of all other members of society. The state conscripts soldiers and confiscates property to finance its war. Whether the soldier wishes to work in the army is no longer a concern. He must serve. Whether the capitalist wishes to invest does not count. His money is confiscated. From an economic point of view, the overall result of this is a misallocation of resources. The state produces cannons and warships that take away the resources for the production of shoes, yogurt, books, and cello lessons, goods and services that the citizens would prefer to enjoy if they could use their property as they pleased. This misallocation is bound to intensify in the course of time. Since statist producers of defense can increase their income by increasing military expenditures, the military now has a built-in tendency to expand its activities without regard for any other considerations. More human and material resources are invested in military undertakings than would be the case in a free society. The state-sponsored military organization will become artificially large, engaging in horizontal and vertical mergers. This means that the extent of defense markets and of the price system will shrink, so that economic calculation becomes increasingly impossible. As a consequence, it becomes ever more difficult to rationally select appropriate defense technologies and forms of organization. Even within the military industry itself, the natural balance between the various goods and services is disrupted. The possibility to ignore the needs of the consumers gives the producers the opportunity to produce goods that only they consider important. 
Since they are typically the chief executives of professional military organizations, they tend to favor the production of heavy armaments and highly specialized manpower for military staff and academies over all other types of military products. They discourage competing non-professional defense organizations and often even seek to prohibit or reduce private gun ownership, etc. Freed from the need to serve consumers as efficiently as possible, the producers of defense services now have a bigger margin for wasteful behavior. The institution of conscription has particularly negative effects, since it encourages military leaders to expose their troops to unnecessary danger. Not surprisingly, compulsory schemes for the production of defense are the same economic debacle that they are in all other fields. Let us therefore turn now to the question of whether, at least in purely military terms, regular government troops are superior to spontaneously formed private war organizations. For if this were the case, the prospects for secessionist movements would be dismal, despite all other advantages. Military Effectiveness of Private Warfare In our examination of the comparative military effectiveness of voluntary versus compulsory organizations, we can safely neglect all problems of military technique. That is, everything that relates to tactics, strategy, military aspects of organization, etc. We are here exclusively concerned about the impact of any military unit's political organization on its military performance. Let us first consider which type of persons will occupy executive positions in the two political regimes. Again, we can neglect common points and focus on the differences stemming from their different political nature. A typical common point is, for example, that in both regimes, the military will attract a disproportionately large number of patriotic persons. By contrast, as we shall see, the crucial difference is that compulsory military agencies, like all compulsory organizations, are subject to the pernicious influence of bureaucratization. In purely voluntary regimes, military leaders are selected exclusively for their military expertise and efficiency. The case is clearest in militias, which commonly elect their leaders. Peacetime militias might, like many other clubs, elect particularly sociable leaders. Yet in times of war, there will surely be a dramatic change, since the election now becomes a matter of life and death. Each single militia member, then, has an interest to make sure that the most able person is in the lead. It is even certain that members would quit a militia if they sensed that the leadership was incapable. Things are basically the same in professional defense agencies operating on a voluntary basis. The owner of these enterprises has a personal interest in hiring only the most able persons for executive positions. If he fails to identify these persons, he runs the risk that other companies will hire them and outcompete him on the market and he is also threatened by the prospect that other soldiers that he hired will give notice, since they too are unwilling to risk their lives under incompetent military leadership. 
these mechanisms are, at least partially, destroyed by the impact of compulsion. Conscription, by its very nature, prevents soldiers from quitting when executive ranks are filled with incompetent personnel. Conscripts are also notoriously unmotivated, being temporary slaves. In confrontation with highly motivated private troops, be they ever so few, this represents a huge competitive disadvantage. The effects of compulsory funding are similarly devastating. It reduces the necessity for the military agencies to satisfy customer needs. As a consequence, as we have seen, the various military executives can start satisfying their own needs, both in respect to the services they produce and in respect to the selection of personnel. It is important to keep in mind that there is no such thing as a defense service or a defense good. All goods and services are heterogeneous, concrete goods, like one hour of guarding property X at location Y, or fortification of hill A against possible assaults by tank divisions of the type B, or by infantry of the type C. In a free society, all consumers involved decide which concrete defense service shall be produced. By contrast, compulsory funding enables the producers to ignore the consumption wishes of their fellows and to place undue emphasis on their own satisfaction. Rather than fortifying Hill A, they fortify Hill H because it is not so windy there or because it better protects the ranch of the general's nephew. Rather than guarding the private property of the civil population, they spend all their time guarding their own bases. Rather than protecting a single house, they close all surrounding streets and shut down the city, etc. Moreover, rather than hiring the most capable personnel, they start hiring the fellows who know the best jokes, or the children of their schoolmates, or people who share their political, sexual, religious, and other preferences. Or they might hire particularly ruthless individuals who despise common morality. Also, rather than organizing the defense units in the most militarily efficient way, they acquiesce to other considerations. For example, the recent admission to the U.S. military of females and homosexual males does not seem to be based on military, but political expediency. The only way to prevent such excesses is to issue specific directives to all executives on how to use their resources, and to check compliance with these directives by written reports, inspection teams, etc., In short, one has to subject the military to a bureaucratic apparatus and regulation. Military leaders are told what to do, when and where, and hiring decisions are made dependent on general standards, that is, on criteria that do not take account of the individual requirements of particular times and places. At least as far as the selection of personnel is concerned, however, such reforms will be doomed to failure. There is only one way to test the ability of a person. Let him do the job and see whether he can do it. 
a person hired by a voluntary defence organisation will soon have shown whether he is suited for his position, because such an organisation constantly has to prove its military effectiveness. Only if it is sufficiently effective will it continue to be patronised. Yet in compulsory organisations, all the tests take place in an artificial environment. For example, one cannot tell whether a soldier or officer is too ruthless or not ruthless enough, or whether he accomplished his task with a sufficient amount of accuracy, for his ruthlessness and the accuracy of his work cannot be judged without standard. And in compulsory organisations, this very standard is arbitrary to a larger degree than in voluntary agencies. Thus we see that private defence agencies, while enjoying all virtues of compulsory schemes, do not suffer from certain specific disadvantages of the latter. In particular, they are likely to attract and select more capable personnel, and they will react to the military requirements of a given situation in a far more flexible way. However, so far we have only dealt with small private units, as they are typical in guerrilla warfare. Our foregoing considerations about economic and military efficiency would thus merely imply that, given equally small units, the private secessionist forces would have a comparative advantage over the government troops. Yet, as a matter of fact, government troops are typically much larger in size. Are our small private units able to confront these large and concentrated forces of the government's army? Before we pursue this question any further, let us observe that such a confrontation might not be necessary in the first place. The purpose of the secession is to break the compulsory ties between the secessionists and the government which they no longer accept. It concerns only the secessionists. It does not concern those who wish to continue to be ruled and protected by the government. Therefore, it is at least conceivable that, as a result of a successful secession, the government troops remain in the seceding lands to protect the loyal subjects. The territory would then no longer be politically homogenous, but sprinkled in the colours of the secession and of the government. There is no reason to assume that such a setting would be inherently unstable and plagued by violence, so that we can go on with our original question. Thus, suppose that all inhabitants of a given territory wanted to secede, but that the government troops refused to quit the country. Suppose, furthermore, that the troops could not rightfully claim any piece of land in the territory as their own. They would then clearly be aggressors, and the inhabitants would be entitled to expel them. Yet how can the secessionists do this? Can they build an army of comparable size to beat the enemy in the open field? Again, we first should raise the question of whether the secessionists need to build up a big army in the first place. We have already mentioned that our libertarian partisans enjoy the advantage of operating on the basis of the same principle of respect for and defense of private property. This is a powerful organizing principle, which gives a common direction to all their scattered individual actions, and which makes sure that they hit the right target in all instances. Thus, to a very large extent, they can do without a common agency. 
They do not need the unity of command, since they enjoy the unity of principle. We have pointed out the benefits and limits of this stage of the secessionist struggle. Decentralized organization in small units can be sufficient to make the costs of ruling unbearably high. Yet, in most cases, it will not be sufficient to rid the country of the government troops, and thus of the taxmen. The government troops must be beaten if they do not go on their own. Can they be beaten? This depends essentially on whether the government can concentrate enough forces in the seceding territories to beat any secessionist army. If it can, the formation of larger units will be futile, and the secessionists are best advised to continue their guerrilla struggle until better opportunities arise. If the government cannot mobilize enough forces, then the formation of larger secessionist units is advisable. This can be effectuated under the three forms of concentration known from civil business. One, growth. Two, merger. And three, joint venture. The possibility to form big private armies through growth and merger is amply illustrated by history. In fact, all armies are in a way private, since they are controlled by one agency. And during most of history, armies were owned by individual human beings, the warlords who personally led their forces on the battlefield. Famous owner warlords of the past include Alexander the Great, Caesar, Attila, Otto the Great, Wallenstein, and Frederick the Great. Yet, even short of merger and growth, history has demonstrated again and again that, in times of dire crisis, private defense organizations have formed joint ventures to meet great threats. At crucial junctures in the history of Western civilization, such independent troops have spontaneously joined forces to confront overwhelming enemies. Examples are the battles against the Huns in 451 AD, against the Saracens in 732 AD, against the Magyars in 955 AD, against the Turks in 1683, against Napoleon in 1813, and against Hitler in 1941-45. Even secessionist movements have successfully practiced military joint ventures, for example, in the case of the Netherlands and Switzerland. To sum up, private defense organizations are, ceteris paribus, more effective than compulsory organizations. Successful secessionist warfare does not necessarily require the expulsion of the government troops, but it might lead to different, equally satisfying settings. Expulsion of the enemy requires a concentration of troops of similar size, which in turn can be accomplished in ways common to other forms of business. Conclusion We have seen that secession is the only type of political reform that does not, by its very nature, contradict the goal of establishing a purely private order. We have furthermore emphasized the harmony between libertarian secession which essentially is resistance by denying support to any type of ruler, and private warfare, 
which is property respecting resistance by using force against the rulers. Successful libertarian secession presupposes that a substantial majority of the population has adopted the secessionist agenda. The very same condition must be given for individuals and spontaneously emerging troops to wage a successful war on a purely voluntary basis. If they are given, the libertarian secessionists can take up any enemy, enjoying superior efficiency and military effectiveness. On the one hand, we thus have to re-emphasize the traditional libertarian stress on education as a means to prepare the advent of a free society. On the other hand, one should not expect the establishment of a free society to be a singular event, covering at once the entire territory formerly controlled by the rulers. Rather, secession is most likely to be a gradual and spontaneous process that involves various sub-territories and even various strata of the population at different points of time. These results might not satisfy the aesthetic predilections of those who abhor political maps sprinkled in different colours, but it will help those who strive for liberty long before their fellows are ripe for it, because it sets their minds free to care about what is attainable here and now. This concludes this audiobook reading of The Myth of National Defense, Essays on the Theory and History of Security Production, edited by Hans Hermann Hopper. For a world of free market literature, visit Mises.org. That's M-I-S-E-S dot org. Thank you.